Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I sat down with Dr. Ian Dunican. Ian is, amongst many other things, a sleep researcher and business consultant. He's a bit of a polymath, so as you'll hear from his bio, he has his fingers in a lot of different professional pies, but the through line is that he's always trying to optimise performance in many different fields, both professionally and personally. He has a developing interest in psychedelics, and that's how he came across my radar when he previously interviewed uh, Stephen Bright for one of his two podcasts. So I'll just give you a quick rundown of his bio, and then we'll get on with the chat. So Ian has 20 years of international experience working in the fields of health, safety and business improvement. And he works with military, mining, rail, oil and gas, utilities, entities to help optimise performance. He also works with elite athletes and we'll come on to that in a minute. He combines scientific research and operational leadership and he supports organisations in reducing risk, lowering cost and optimising productivity and performance. So as you can hear and as we will discuss, optimising the sleep of athletes and workers is an absolutely key area in trying to improve performance and I think there will be a lot of transferability over to helping people utilise psychedelics to heal. In the mining, oil and gas sectors, Ian has worked internationally as an advisor to major companies including Rio Tinto, Woodside, BHB, Anglo Gold Ashanti, South32, Carrara Mining, Peabody and Goldcore. In terms of his work with elite athletes, he has worked with the Australian Institute of Sport, the West Australian Institute of Sport, the Super Rugby franchise, the AFL franchise and Formula One to optimise human performance in preparation not only for international competition but to help athletes prepare for the Olympics. In terms of academics, Ian is a regular speaker and chair at numerous universities and he presents at a wide variety of international conferences in the fields of mining, transport, sports performance and physiology. He is a regular contributor to many media outlets including but not limited to the Australian Financial Review, the Australian Men's Fitness Magazine, Blitz Martial Arts, BJJ Scout and the Huffington Post. Ian has spoken on The Health Report on ABC Radio in Australia. He's also been on ABC numerous times on Channel 7, 9 and 10 in Australia and he was a TEDx Perth speaker in 2017. Ian is the author and co-author of numerous technical reports, scientific articles and industry guidelines and is a regular reviewer for scientific peer-reviewed journals. In addition to all this, he is also an endurance athlete and he has completed over 20 ultramarathons to date, including the Ultra Trail Australia 100k, he's done that seven times, the Leadville 100 miler, he's obviously run numerous marathons and trail running events. He's currently focused on improving his swimming and he is undertaking long distance open water swimming events from 10 to 20k. So as you'll hear, a lot of these pursuits are actually supporting his interest in the esoteric thing line of things and so our discussion is very different from his bio but I think it's really informative to show that people can very much have their uh, sort of presentation in the corporate world but also be thinking very deeply about a range of issues so uh, as always I hope to see you on the other side of the chat and enjoy here with Ian. How are you going? I'm good. Is your <laughs> microphone all good now? Yeah, your microphone's all good. Will we sing a song to kick it off? 
yeah. we'll uh, we'll we'll start slow and build them up. You know, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll do one for the encore. So, if you're not remember that song, please email Niall and we'll give you a 50, 50 euro cash. Do you know that song? Do you know the song? I don't. No, what five to one by the doors. To one no one here gets out alive. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the theme for the podcast. Nobody gets out alive for this podcast. So I will have done all the, because um, I'm a glutton for punishment, done all the previous bio stuff because I find there's nothing more tedious than having to sit through your own. Your own bio. That's right. <laughs> it's good to remember who I am. Who I am. Yeah, exactly. I <laughs> so, um, myself and Ian have been chatting about the the inevitable uh, overlap of non-ordinary states of consciousness and sleep and psychedelia are two ones that if you're looking at non-ordinary states, you just can't really avoid. So, we had thought that today we might just go real back to basics and I'm very keen to sort of pick Ian's brains and find out what led him into his, you know, current fields of study and, and work. And then we'll just go through the basics of sleep and then let's just see where, where we go from there. So give us a bit of a background. Uh, like, what was your first point that you can look back and say, I became really interested in, in sleep? Like, where does where your fascination come from? So I know today we're going to talk about psychedelics in the long term. Yeah. I'm not one of these people that took a magic you know, heroic magic dose of magic mushrooms or DMT and went, ooh, I need to do this. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> so, because 90% of people <laughs> that we come across in the psychedelic community are like, oh, I took acid or I took MDMA or I took this and I had this big revelation. So, um, the quick kind of abridged version is, um, obviously Irish, um, been in Australia for about 20 years, but grew up in a classic Irish working class family, had no aspirations for university, um, Wanted to either get a job or get into the army. Didn't really kind of... I kind of flirted every now and then with maybe doing psychology, but was like, oh, I couldn't be bothered. Um, was in the army for five years, left the military. Um, worked in a couple of different jobs. Went, came here to Australia. Worked in mining for about 10 years. Went back to university, did my undergrad. And uh, then did a postgrad in business and engineering. So did an MBA and a master's in engineering. And... Uh, education. <laughs> yeah, so I got this really like mixed bag. So I did an associate's degree or an advanced diploma in occupational health, safety and training. Did my undergraduate degree in adult education, training and development. And then did an MBA and a master's in engineering. So I'm um, I'm a, a very weird, wonderful path. I basically went, hmm, what interests me and what's next? So I never had this predetermined plan of, you know, I'll do X, Y and Z and then you know, come up with some qualification and get some job. I really just chased whatever I enjoyed learning at the time. That's all it was about. It was just pure interest for me. And because um, I hated school growing up, like I really did not like being in school. So I thought if I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn things I like, whether that's archaeology, history or like whatever I pick up, I'm just going to I'm just going to go with my gut feel and see where it takes me. How I got into the sleep world was a bit a bit odd because I'd been kind of bouncing between health and safety and business improvement roles in a mining company. And I got asked to facilitate a workshop where human resources, health and safety and operations were grappling, I suppose, to put together a policy and a, a plan for a region. And one of the general managers asked me to come in and facilitate a three-hour workshop. And that's really how it started. 
Yeah, I never even went in as a technical person. I went in as a person that could basically facilitate because of my background in health and safety and business improvement. And because of some of the kind of long distance events I've done outside and ex-military, I think people thought, well, this guy will maybe get it from a health safety perspective and from an operations perspective and try and help us get some balance. And that's that's really all it was. It was a three-hour workshop on a Friday morning and that just kick-started it down. And that was nearly, that was about 13, 14 years ago. And then that kick-started into a, a, me getting taken out of my job to, to work on that project, then into a kind of a national role, into a global role. And then led me to go, well, actual, actual fact, this is something I want to pursue and ended up leaving that company and going back to do a PhD and then starting up my own business. So that's, it, it's very much, um, you know, Sam Harris would often talk about free will. I, in some ways, I maybe it, it has all been predetermined and there is no free will. Or maybe I just completely am like a child that looks at a colored ball and just jumps at it, you know, <laughs> you know or a cat with a ball of string. Because it wouldn't surprise me. Like, I'm 43. It would not surprise me if at the age of 60 I was an archaeologist in Egypt, you know, on, you know, brushing something off a stone. Like, it would not, because I am just like that, where I will just go, wow, this is really interesting. I'll just keep, you know, because I, I just, I think I'm just curious by nature. And that's why I didn't like school, because you're kind of put into that kind of system of just sitting down and, you know, getting shit just force fed down your throat. It's, and it's offensive, isn't it, when you find yourself in your own spare time enjoying a topic? through podcasts or chatting with your friends or you know spending a decent bit of money on books and you come across a topic and you're like this is fascinating where have I heard that before and you think oh I learned that at school and it was it was like watching paint dry yeah yeah, how, yeah. you're sort of amazed at how they made it so boring something which is so inherently interesting um I want to pick up on because we sort of brushed over that your first probably exposure to sleep and it's the perturbation of sleep was, I'm sure, during the military. You know, like, what was your... Exp- what Give us a bit of story about your military background. How did sleep play into that? Because well, I can't well imagine I'd, you were getting I'd even go back, Niall, before the military. Because as a teenager, I didn't enjoy being at home much. <laughs> and um, I was mad into rugby. So I played, like, you know, played a lot of rugby for the school and my local club. And I also had a part-time job. And sometimes then I would do a second part-time job or fill in. So even then at school, I was grappling with loss of sleep because I would often go and work in a bar till, I know it's probably hard for people to believe, but in Ireland, like you can back in <laughs> when I grew up a little while ago, I had my first job working in a bar at the age of 12, right? <laughs> Picking up glasses, right? And cleaning up. Now you laugh at that and probably go, oh, that's a bit crazy, but. You know it's not out of realms of possibility in Ireland. I was probably, you were probably serving me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you've had too much, get out. Glass lifter's 12 and the boy that he's picking a glass off is 13. Yeah. He's in the air above him. And people laugh in places like Australia or America, but um, in Ireland that's completely normal, right? And so especially back around 1990, (laughs) that was completely normal. So there was no problem with that. Um, And so even back then, at sort of 14, 15, working in the bar till about, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, going home, getting some sleep, getting up then and trying to play rugby, you know, might have a game at half 10 in the morning and then, you know, playing again, sorry, working again that evening. And often on the weekend, I played two games, one on a Saturday and one on a Sunday. So even then I was grappling with sleep loss um, and it was just a kind of push through. And I think when you're young, you can overcome those kind of deleterious effects of, would say that kind of bit of sleep loss. But I often remember sometimes on a Sunday, like my dad would come in and he'd be like, get the fuck out of bed. What are you doing? Like three o'clock in the afternoon. Whereas on, I, what would happen was I'd have so much sleep loss throughout the week that on a Sunday, if I didn't have a game or didn't have to get up, 
you know, and people sort of forgot about me in the house, it could be three or four o'clock and I'd be just like, and he'd come in and wake me up and it was like getting woken up at four o'clock in the morning. I was still like behind in sleep. So I would use that kind of, I would crash and burn most weeks. I'd have those days where I'd just be absolutely wrecked or I'd come off from school and I'd grab a nap somewhere. So even then, I think just by virtue of my lifestyle as a teenager, I was grappling with, with some sleep restriction or sleep loss then. And then, as you say, uh, I joined the military. And obviously, uh, in military training, you get to either live or learn, you know, with sleep loss. You live with it or you, you learn how to live with it or you don't. And so there was lots of that went on, obviously, in training. And then, obviously, being an operational soldier um, in the in infantry, doing lots of training exercises or being overseas or, you know, in the Irish Army, we do lots of it, civil power. So we work in things like um, prisons in terms of providing external security, there's all those type of things where you're going to have sleep loss, sleep restriction, you're doing 24-hour duties and so on. So you do kind of um, get exposed to it. In saying that, I didn't like it. I never liked it. I was never someone who liked doing those kind of night shift type things or those nighttime activities. I'd be all right till about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and then I'd be absolutely screwed. But I was never one that was like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at coping with sleep deprivation. It always hit me hard. Yeah, so... <coughs> Just two good jobs and join the military and I work in a bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but those, that, so that's your sort of adolescent years were a sort of masterclass in what sleep deprivation can do to you in terms of performance and, and just the general deranged and effects of it. Um, I mean, we can, we'll jump around a little bit, but um, the overlap between uh, sleep loss and sleep disturbance and, and mental health is, I think, really where we're you know going with this overlap between the two things. So before we get sort of deeper into that, I really want to hear from you, like, what is sleep? Because the way people would conceptualize that the field, I'm sure it's not like a finished, complete, completed science. Like, so if someone says to you, what is sleep? What, how would you define sleep? Yeah, this takes a little bit of um, little bit of time to kind of describe what it is. So I'm, I'm, I'll back up and we'll talk a little bit about kind of this be inter- intertwined with history, I suppose, a little bit here. But really, to sum it up, we don't know what sleep is still. It's 2021, if anybody has found these archives and it's the year 3050. It's 2021 and we still don't know what the one true function of sleep is. It's also really important to note that sleep science as a discipline or sleep medicine has really only been around since the 70s or 80s in terms of having governing bodies like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Um, so let's say the 70s, that kind of kicked off. <clears throat> then in the 80s and 90s, we saw some research around shift work. Since about 2010, we've seen research around sleeping athletes. Right, So it's very, very new. So we, we are far from understanding some of the even, I would say, well, we're not far... We're far from understanding what the, the true function of sleep is, but we're still looking at those basic functions of sleep. What is these kind of building blocks or what's it for? Um, to go back to sort of, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotle, Socrates, all these type of philosophers grappled with sleep and they discussed it. And so we've always been kind of enamored with the function of sleep and it's kind of changed over time. So initially what happened was these philosophers thought that when when we consumed food, that some sort of gas would be released from the stomach. The gas then would travel up through the esophagus into the brain, and then that gas would make us feel sleepy. Because everything was kind of elemental back then. It was like, you know, earth, gases, air, 
fire. There was all these kind of en- ele- elemental kind of, you know, um, components to the, to the universe. And But they were onto something because really what they were looking at was kind of cause and effect. I eat something at lunchtime, I feel a bit sleepy afterwards. I eat in the evening, I fall asleep a few hours later. Surely there must be a relationship. Hunger, I feel tired. And even today, some people think, oh, because I eat a big meal, I feel tired and that makes me sleep. There is no real cause and effect of the food that you eat in terms of the sleep pressure that you talk that you have. And we'll talk a bit about that a little bit more about that later on, I suppose. But what we're seeing there is like that was probably the first observation of what we call circadian dips or circadian adheres. And people might have heard of circadian rhythms, circa meaning about the amino a day. And you might have this little circadian dip after lunch, this post-lunch dip, hence why people have a siesta. So they're kind of onto something there. Then the kind of, you know, over the years, different things happened. Um, we saw with plant biology, people would see that, you know, flowers would open at certain times of day and close. So this is this kind of circadian biology, circadian physiology emerging. Um, we see that people then start thinking more about light and dark cycles. Um, you know, and then we saw in the, in the, the 20s and 30s, we saw sleep and wakefulness being explored a little bit more. People did experiments by going into uh, abandoned mine, mining operations or caves to take away light and dark cycles, to take away clocks, to see what would happen with the body clock and how it would free run. And then in the 50s and 60s, we saw the discovery of sleep stages. And interesting enough, when Bill DeMent, who recently passed away, who was at Stanford for many years, who's often you know, kind of noted as the, the grandfather of sleep medicine in, in our society, when he published that paper on, on sleep stages, it got rejected like something like five or six times. People didn't believe it. And so the sleep stages that you hear about today, being awake, stage one, stage two, stage three, REM sleep. That, that, so like 50, 60 years ago, people were basically going, this is bullshit. This is, this, this, is, this, is, this is nothing. The first guy through the wall always gets bloodied. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's kind of a, a common thing in science if you look back over history. So for people who are jumping up and down about different health topics at the moment, going, this is wrong, this is wrong. Maybe just take a pinch of salt and look at what's happened previously because sometimes the people who are wrong turn out to be the people who are right. Not saying that everybody's wrong is right, but you know, it's an interesting way to look at it. So that's really new. Uh, sorry to in- interrupt you, but it's really new to you know. We we know those are such common knowledge. You know, we'll get into that. You know, me delineating REM and non-REM sleep in the different you know stages of your sort of ninety-minute sleep cycle. But that's really quite recent in terms of science. I don't think people would maybe realise that this is not something that we've had for a very long time. So. Yeah, all the research off the back of that is that the paradigm is not is still pretty fresh for people to be working with. Um, so what? So sleep is this sort of primordial understanding of sleep from um, the classics of this elemental force which builds up throughout the day in response to different different things that we're doing. <coughs> I've heard, um, and I'll link to this in the show notes. Matthew Walker talking to Peter Atia. There's like a good series, which I think if people are really wanting to deep dive in this, uh, there's there's a couple of really good podcasts, which I just want to, you know, I just want people to know more about sleep in this field, myself absolutely included. But that thought of the of sleep being a response to wakefulness, that it's, he mentions that it could very well be that our sort of natural state as an organism was like, wakefulness has emerged from you know the, the directionality is the opposite way around where it's not like we've been awake and then we've fallen asleep it's that you know as an or as evolutionarily we've always been asleep and wakefulness has been this phenomenon that's emerged on top of it so 
what I mean it's a bit of a rambling question, but sleepy sleep sleeping isn't to cure sleepiness. That's not what you know has previously been taught. So the major function for sleep I think a lot of people still think, oh well you just get sleepy and then you go to sleep and that cures it and then you're back and you're back to your default state, which is being awake. So from a functional perspective, if people are just poo-pooing this saying, ah, you just fall asleep, it's your unconscious what are the big bits of science which have showed to us that no sleep isn't just some like, you know, the computer's dead? Like what 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 have been the major shifts in our understanding of the functional importance of sleep for the organism? I think to answer to 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 get into that, we need to probably establish a couple of factors first. Is that when we talk about sleep, we need to talk about two things, and one of them you've alluded to there, which is what's called sleep pressure. So basically we have two things occurring across a twenty four hour period. We have sleep uh pressure. And we also have a circadian rhythm. So if you think about this as like two, two curves on a graph, well, think about sleep as a line on a graph. The longer you're awake, the more that pressure builds up. So if you're awake for 10 hours, 12 hours, 17, 24, the longer you're awake, the higher the pressure for sleep or the higher the need. So more wakefulness equals tiredness, really. Right. The second thing you have then overlaid that is the circadian rhythm which is a curve that kind of oscillates over a 24-hour period. And like I said, it has a little dip in the afternoon. And then it's got a major dip between sort of 2 and 7 o'clock in the morning. So if you got up this morning, let's say at 6, and you stayed awake all day, and up until, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're awake for 21 hours. And then you'll feel really tired because you're in that circadian dip and the sleep pressure is really high. But let's say then around 6 o'clock in the morning, the sun starts coming up. Because of normal biological rhythms and functions, such as increased temperature, increased cortisol levels, you'll feel like you're getting a second wind. And you think, fuck, the longer I st- spend awake, actually, the better I feel. So I, this is just a mindset. I can push myself through that. But then in the afternoon, you'll feel that dip. And what's happening is it's kind of building and building and building where you're just going down, down, down over time. So as sleepiness goes up and as these circadian rhythms fluctuate, but your performance is going to go down long term. So it's important to kind of note those as these underlying functions that's going to happen with sleep. But in terms of your original question about what the what was it about the function the 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 functions of sleep and what are the sort of me- what are, how how do we what do we cite as evidence that this is the function and this is the evidence that we cite as you know, why sleep is important for us. Yeah, so we're going into an area here that's probably not my forte because I do and here's another thing people will go well why don't you know about sleep like this. So when we look at sleep we divide it again into a few areas. So there's like sleep medicine where physicians will work on, which is sleep physicians who do lots of kind of respiratory sleep disorders, maybe neurological stuff. Then you have sleep scientists who will um, work in laboratories doing lots of sleep studies um, and research related to sleep from a laboratory perspective. Then you have sleep technicians who will work with those people to set people up um, for those lab experiments. And then you have what's called chronobiologists and that's really what I am. So I'm more of a chronobiologist where I do more kind of applied stuff in the field with athletes, shift work, the application of that from the laboratory out into the field. So that's really kind of more the area I play around in. However, I am also trained in, in sleep science. I have got postgraduate qualifications in it. I've done some studies in the lab as well. It's not what I love um, in the lab. It's interesting, but I use that to bring it out into the field. Yeah. So from but coming back to your question about the functions of sleep, we know that from when people don't get enough sleep, um, from either sleep deprivation studies when we keep people awake completely throughout a full night, 24 hours, 
whether we um, induce sleep loss or we sleep restrict them, whether it be stages of sleep or a portion of time of sleep, we know certain things happen. So for example, this is very reductionistic, right? So it's very kind of post-enlightenment, sort of everything has to be reduced down, we're eliminating stuff away. And what we do know is that when we reduce people's sleep and we deprive people of sleep, we see things like the increase of type 2 diabetes. We see a disruption of um, appetite-regulating hormones such as leptin and ghrelin. So ghrelin increases, people are feeling more hungry, and that can be exacerbated then depending on if they're doing shift work on top of that. So we're not even talking about shift work yet, we're just talking about sleep loss. So people are going to you know, tend to reach for more fatty foods. You may have even felt this yourself if you had to get up early one morning or you've had a bit of a shitty night's sleep, you might find yourself reaching for a Kit Kat mid-morning, cup of coffee, an extra spoonful of sugar. You might be looking in the fridge a bit more often. And we all do it. I did it yesterday. I had a shit night's sleep last night and I got up really early yesterday morning and around 11 o'clock, I was just like walking around doughy. I had bad hair fever. I was really tired. And what did I do? Next minute, I had a lump of chocolate in my hand. I was like, how did that get there? It's like on autopilot, right? <laughs> so we've all done it. And we're all guilty of it. So we see things like obesity. We see diabetes increase. We also see, depending on the stages of sleep that we miss out on, we might see bad decisions getting made, which is like putting the chocolate in my hand, right? You might find yourself getting irritable in the short term. Mood might change. We also see them performance deficits. So we see people making mistakes while they're driving. Um... We see people having bad reaction times. So we see multiple sort of short-term, medium-term, and long-term effects of it. And then we know that long-term sleep loss is linked to cardiovascular disease. And then if we start adding in shift work or permanent night shift, we see the link there between um, uh, cancer as well. So a type 2A carcinogen as well. I want, I want to get on to that more, you know, the chronotypes and applied stuff and where the rubber meets the road. <coughs> but I think it really does bear repeating that, you know, the the evidence just seems to keep mounting for if you really want to fuck up your health, you know, don't pet, don't, don't focus on your sleep, you know, just sleep poorly and don't, don't put any effort into that. Um, what about neurodegenerative stuff? Cause that's something which. It's not really an area I have played in much in terms of, uh, well, it definitely happened in research, but it's just been kind of side reading in that area. But what we do know is that if we look at sleep disorders, let's say, um, so when we talk about sleep disorders, people often just think about sleep apnea, but there's actually over 70 recognized sleep disorders according to the, Academy, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is like the premier body for, for this. Now, when we diagnose or we assess people for, um, when we assess people or diagnose somebody for a sleep disorder, which diagnosis has to be done by a sleep physician um, from a specific test or tests, that's not so a physician just going, oh, I think you have this or I think you have that. It's a very, very stringent criteria. It's, a, it's um, You have to meet a lot of criteria. So, you know, and it's things like, you know, for like periodic leg movement disorder, you have to be like moving your legs at a certain time, certain frequency. The EMG on the leg has got to show a movement X amount of times per minute over an hour, coupled with disturbances in the EEG in the brain, coupled with a lack of like, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it just goes on and on and on. So it's not like someone licking their finger and, and sticking up near and going, oh, I think now you've got insomnia. It's, it's not at all like that. It's very, very stringent. And I don't think a lot of people understand that, that there's so many sleep disorders. And they're all broken down into categories like parainsomnia, like somebody sleepwalking, to somebody having a sleep-related breathing disorder like OSA. There's insomnias. Um, there's shift work disorder, there's leg movement disorders, there's, and it just goes on and on and on. So like I said, there's over 70 of those that are recognized. 
Um, and so with those, we often see that there is a link between those sleep disorders and other neurodegenerative issues. For example, I just spoke about periodic leg movement disorder. People with periodic leg movement disorder, it's often linked to uh, low iron um, in, the, in the blood. But also as well, there's a 70% chance that if you have one of these movement disorders overnight whilst you sleep, there's a 70% chance you'll develop Parkinson's. Right, so there's, yeah. there's, there's clearly... There's clearly clear links, be correlation data, between yeah. those. So, like, you know, treating these sleep disorders, um, you know, is very important. Now, some people might think, oh, you know, I move my legs a lot during the day, I've got restless legs. So, having restless legs during the day is not always linked to a periodic leg movement disorder overnight, but it might be. But you may, you know, you may have that movement overnight where you're constantly moving, moving your legs, and that could be related to one of these issues as well. Yeah, so it's... <coughs> this is something which... I, I notice, uh, Ian, is generally people would probably talk about their, say they they just have an issue with sleep, and then we can, I want to move more into the applied stuff, but people will often com- complain of sleep issues to maybe their, their, their psychologist or their therapist, and like you said, at root, a lot of these diagnoses and ex, you know examinations and and all of these things are based in a in a very hard physiological world of data and an assessment which isn't usually the wheelhouse of people who've done more you know social science based things there's a like a hard physiological science behind this so if someone is has an issue uh, and they they think well I'm just not sleeping well what is the typical pathway for someone to go from thinking they have an issue to receiving a, a, a sort of valid enough diagnosis, like how do, what does what should they do? Yeah, and it's hard to, to drill in. And sometimes people ring me and ask me, or text me, or email me, and go, oh, "I've got a problem. Who? Sh- what should I do?" And I go, "You need to ring me and talk about it." So, because um, it will be there is multiple pathways into it. Whether you're an athlete, whether you're a shift worker, whether you're um, you know just a, a normal average job working nine to five, I think it's important as well to understand that when we think about problems with sleep as an overarching statement we need to break that down and think about is it a problem with sleep that's kind of transient i'm having a few bad nights in a row is it a sleep disturbance that might be related to the environment that i'm in or is it an actual sleep disorder that could be clinically assessed and we don't know which one of those it is so if it's a sleep problem where i just can't get to sleep and it's for a few nights or it's for a bad period or something's going on, maybe got a little bit of stress in the family, I've got and maybe a death in the family, whatever it might be, that's completely normal. That people will go through periods of sleep problems. We don't always go to bed every night and have perfect sleep. So it's quite normal to have even a couple of bad nights sleep a month. It's completely normal, right? doesn't mean you're an insomniac. If we look at sleep disturbances in terms of environment, that could be related to where you live, the amount of people in your house, uh, the behaviors in your house as well is, you know, someone banging music till four o'clock in the morning, a teenager, are you sharing a house? Are you in a suburb where it's quite loud? And um, we've also seen studies as well where people live in lower socioeconomic um, suburbs, particularly in the US. People like there's gun violence, there's screaming and roaring. All of these things create additional sleep disturbances as well. So it could be related to the environment and not related to you as an individual. Uh, if you're in a military environment or you're in a mining camp environment, yeah. there's all of these. old baby. Yeah, baby <laughs> as well. All of these kind of environmental things that were causing these sleep disturbances as well. All of these things are factors into it. So you wouldn't say to somebody, oh, I want you to go and get assessed for sleep apnea because your baby's keeping you awake. 
that's the equivalent of going like I fell over and hurt my knee, so my control is a fire extinguisher. You know, it's just it's polar opposite things to do. Um, and then we have obviously got sleep disorders, uh, clinical sleep disorders, where you're going to need a referral to a sleep physician. A lot of people will say, go to your GP. But the problem is a lot of GPs don't actually know how to treat this or don't even know how to identify it. The amount of people that have come to me and gone, oh, I've been to the GP multiple times and I'm just on sleep meds. Sleep medication generally is only, um, its efficacy is only for about 10 days. But lots of people are on sleep medication for years. So it's like, well, you've just got yourself on this bad cycle. And actual fact, I did a presentation yesterday to a government department <laughs> and someone told me afterwards that they were hooked to sleep meds for two years. And it took them years to get off it. And I just I made them actually I made them I made them worse. And they wish they knew that they, they wish now that they knew how to solve that problem back then. Because it was pure behavioral based. Right. So it depends on how, on the problem that people are gonna have. And I'm not I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here, but if it's if you think you have a sleep problem, it's it's actually really hard. It's a it's a good question now, because it's actually I would feel sorry for somebody not being kind of having basic knowledge in this because what do you do you go to your GP your GP gives you sleep meds or tells you to relax you know you go to a psychologist it depends where that psychologist has is a clinical psychologist specialised in sleep they, they might not have touched hard science since their GCSEs or when they were 15 you exactly know, so they don't and have they a may, sensibility and for they may it. have not even done any stuff in their clinical psychology practice around sleep and then you go to a sleep physician and you might be struggling like with shift work and so on and what's the sleep physician going to tell you we well, don't have a sleep disorder don't do shift work and you're sitting there going, I don't really know what to do. So it is very, very difficult to do it. I would say probably the best place to start is try to find a clinical psychologist who specializes in sleep if you have sleep problems. Well, we'll what I can do in link, link in the show notes is, and it goes without saying, and this is just an ambient bit of information, is that I'm not a medical doctor, you know, nor is Ian. We're not given any prescriptive diagnostic advice, yeah. but we do notice, uh, and I'd say in your world too, a big gap in the basic level of understanding of sleep in amongst the general population and unfortunately that meet, that need isn't really met by first line medical providers in my opinion so you do need to educate yourself oh, 100% a bit. and we, we've seen this there's, there's been a parliamentary inquiry aptly called bedtime reading which has actually spoken about this kind of lack of knowledge across the board even with you know with GPs with nursing staff, paramedics, all of these kind of people in these areas. And it's not their fault. It's just they're not provided with that information. So most GPs in their training will get somewhere maybe between 6 to 20 hours of training in Australia, which is pretty good actually compared to other countries. Other places get nothing. you know. But you look at when people go to a GP, trouble sleeping, trouble with my way. And if you combine those two subjects, most GPs are getting less than like a week's training in that for like nutrition and sleep. But everybody goes to their GP. Well, the thing um, about... Th- I have two points on that. One thing which I'm just um, imagining now might actually hold back that growing awareness within undergrads, say, doctors and psychologists, especially doctors, and, and I would imagine in the military as well, is they often have inbuilt in their whole stru- train- training structure sleep deprivation as like par for the course. So if you're giving a lecture to people saying, you know, okay, well, sleep is hugely important and we just, you know, the evidence keeps compounding and it impacts every system that we can think of. Oh, okay, now you're in your junior house officer year and you have to work <laughs> 80, 90 hours a week. It can seem quite hypocritical. So um, I think there's probably a little bit of an unconscious bias away from talking about sleep because you'd have to, the, the medical training capacity would have to take a good look at the way that it sets up young doctors. Oh, 
Yeah, and this has been this has been an issue for nearly twenty years in the medical industry. Um, so Steve Lockley out of Harvard has done some work on this, and numerous other people. Um, I know I've seen Steve present some stuff back around 2009, 2010 here in Australia, um, discussing this. How basically, you know, in America, he put up two cases. It was like a doctor was driving home after working, you know, something crazy like forty hours straight, crashed a car and killed somebody. No, and it was like the headline, like the, the tired doctor who was saving lives, you know, unfortunately this happened. A nurse who had worked like 20 hours was driving home, crashed into somebody and the nurse got charged with murder. Yeah. Right. So it's this kind of, there's this bit, uh, <laughs> people don't, people mightn't like this, but it's true. And I've seen people debate this in conferences as well, medic, particularly medical doctors. There's this sort of arrogance, like I'm kind of cleverer than you, <laughs> cleverer is the word. I'm more clever than you, so I can sort of overcome the deleterious effects of sleep because, you know, I'm not a fucking idiot type of thing. It's like a selection. It's yeah. like we're weeding out the weak people. But it's, but it's actually not. So, yeah, through training, obviously, people will will self-select in terms of what profession they're going to go in because I'm sure that some doctors, you know, in their, in their training years or speciality may go to ED and have this, you know, beautiful, you know, vision of, like, working in 24 hours emergency or you know, something out of VR and I'm going to be an emergency doctor. But then they start doing shift work and like, oh, fuck this. I just want to do, maybe I'll just go and be, I'll specialize in knee surgery instead because you do day shift only. And then we see doctors who basically get out and do occupational medicine where they're working day shift only. So people will self-select out of those things as well. But I think this type of thing, type of thing that, you know, I'm, I've got the IQ or the intelligence or, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I can overcome it. There is no evidence to support that. You can be Einstein and you can still fall asleep. And also, if you know, at hour 23 of someone being awake, if you put me up against someone to compete in an IQ test, you yeah. know, I, that's my time to, yeah. when they're, that'll take 10 points off, you know, straight out of the gate. So I'm not disputing, I think sometimes the medical profession is a wee bit resistant to this, and I think rightly so, because they want to have selection criteria where they can weed out on, I just think it's a terrible metric. It's like, by all means, select the people who, you think are going to be the hardiest, the most resilient. But just choose a different metric than sleep because even when you do select those people who are the best and they're the toughest, you might have chosen someone who is a bit masochistic and you're also going to choose someone and keep them in a culture where they're not performing optimally. And I'd love to get on to, to that. But just to put a pin in, if anyone's sort of listening and thinking, I don't know if I have a sleep disturbance or a sleep disorder. I think that's something which you should pursue by doing your own desk research and then speaking to your first line medical practitioner. But don't don't just assume that they'll know their arse from their elbow. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah. So uh, do your own research and uh, you know make let let that be duly noted. So to shift a wee bit more um, onto the work that you're currently doing now, I'd love to get a feel for. How consulting, let's call it, in all its different categories on sleep, how does that play into your, you know, day-to-day now, Ian? Yeah, so there's probably, I would say, four kind of buckets I work across, if you want to call it that. So uh, bucket one (laughs) is Melius Consulting, which is where we consult the industry around shift and roster design, sleep disorder management processes, uh, fitness for work, change management, all these kind of associated things in the occupational health sphere where we work with a lot of companies around designing more around the strategy and systems for it. So the big kind of mining companies, oil and gas, rail, high risk, aviation and so on. So I work a lot with those. Um, And a lot of that is 
And just to clarify that for people, it's not like we go in and we say to people, like, we're going to watch you sleep or we tell people to go to bed at seven and get up at four. We have a lot of, you know, scientific kind of approaches that we use from diagnostics from a company structure point of view of what we have to do. So we do lots of fatigue risk management where we designed our systems. We put metrics in place. We use scientific tools to assess the rosters that they have. We look at data. So it's very much um, a scientific approach. We're not management consultants. We're scientific consultants. So we're everybody that we that works with us is, you know, PhD level. Um, so we're not getting someone in to go like, oh, I think this is a better roster than this. Um, and so, you know, anybody that comes in, any of our subcontractors that we have are all PhD levels in this area, in the area of experimental psychology, sleep or human performance areas. So that's kind of bucket one, if you want to talk about it, where we work. The second bucket then is um, what's called sleep for performance. And that's really focused on athletes. Um, and so this year we've been working with McLaren Formula One racing team. And we've been developing an application with those guys. They've been developing the app. We've been developing the content and the logic into that. Um, and we've just signed with them last week for next season as well to work with them again in 2022. And really what we're focused on there is the engineers and the pit crew. And that's really focused on travel fatigue, jet lag, because obviously a Formula One team, it's a bit like fly and fly out. They're away one week home, away home. So they do like 22, 23 races in a, in a 52-week year. That's including, you know, They've got a summer break in the middle around August, and then there's obviously the end of the year where they have about two or three months off, but then they've got all these races jam-packed in. So that's really cool because I'm a Formula 1 fan and a McLaren fan, so it's really nice to work work with that same team. Um, but we also work with other sports. We've worked with like MMA fighters, uh, worked with like yeah, Major League Baseball pitchers in the U.S., um, and it's all about optimization. Now, every client or every, sometimes work with individuals, sometimes with teams, is all going to be slightly different. Some of the teams is more about organizational design. How should we travel? How should we fly? When should we come home? When should we stay? When should we train? And again, it's a scientific approach to that. And then for the individuals, it might be more targeted about specific interventions or working with them one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, the third bucket I work in is around the research. So I have two adjunct positions, one at University of Western Australia and one at Eda Cowan University. And so uh, currently I'm working with uh, five PhD students doing research there across those two universities and also one in, in Ireland who's actually from Perth but living in Ireland at the moment. So um, that research then is anything from shift work to looking at... Um, some nutritional aspects as well in another study. And another one is elite sport. Another one is working at with amateur tennis players. Another one is looking at esports. Um, and then I also do my own research as well. So I might collaborate with other groups. Um, but I also have a few projects that I run myself. So one that we have in development is looking at sleep and nutrition practices in elite combat athletes. So myself, Andy Galpin um, from Calstead Fullerton, who's been on the Joe Rogan podcast, um, and then Reed Real, who is with the UFC in Shanghai. So we're, that study's probably going to get going in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so there's, and then I've got a three or four other studies sitting beside behind that as well that I'm working on at the moment. So I do a lot of research there. So that's that's all adjunct position works. So that's all kind of um, volunteer work, so to speak. I don't get paid by any, any universities. So if anybody wants to cancel me, you can't run to a university and cancel me. Um, because I don't get paid by them. So that's all completely voluntary work. And then I do some collaborations with Monash University in Melbourne as well. 
And then the final bucket is my kind of podcasting bucket, which feeds in. So I do a podcast called Sleep for Performance, um, which obviously spans all of those in, in, um, interests. But but for me, the podcast is more about me connecting with other researchers um, and, and having a chat with different people across different domains of sleep. And so it's quite lighthearted. It's not full-on scientific as in we don't sit there talking about the intricate details of statistical analysis or data, we, we try to make a, you know, kind of fun and, and have people to listen to it to, to gain knowledge from it. And um, I've also started another podcast, which kind of ties in my out-of-work interests. Um, so I have a big interest in philosophy, particularly Eastern philosophy around Buddhism and Taoism. I also like history, uh, a bit of sociology, I like discussing current political problems and things like that. So we have a podcast called Learning to Die, Myself and Kieran O'Regan, uh, a guy from uh, Ireland. So myself and Kieran release a podcast every Wednesday. And uh, that's how I first came across that's you. That's right, yeah. Because you interviewed so uh, Stephen Bright uh, prior and realised he worked around the corner from you, basically, in terms yeah. of your adjunct position. So, yeah, that was where I came So it was episode you. six on psychedelics, yeah. So um, we looked, spoke about psychedelic research that Stephen was doing um, or had been involved in. And so, yeah, we're up to, like, episode... I think 12 or 13, we had um, Stephen Blackwood on last week and Stephen was on Jordan Peterson's podcast recently. He's the he's the head of Ralston Yeah, we, so we had yeah, him on. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, so Kieran interviewed him on his own because just sometimes about time differences is hard to work it out. So he was on two weeks ago or last week. And then this week we interviewed a guy called Gordon Marino. Gordon Marino has written a great book called The Existential Guide to Survival, How to Live, in a, how to live, in an, how to live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age. And Gord, that book is awesome. I re- highly recommend that book. It's a philosophy book, but it's not a philosophy book. We'll link to link to all those different things because, uh, as you can see, gosh, you're lo- you're across a lot of things. Now, one thing which people might be wondering is, okay, you're talking a bit about sleep. This is a psychedelics podcast. What is the overlap? But the the angle that I think is very interesting that you come from is that you have an esoteric look at things as well, yeah. as well as being excuse me, a, a died in the wool, you know, spe- like hard scientist specialist working with organizations that might not be science per se, but they have outcome measures. You know, they really, Formula One, it's all about yeah, data, yeah. you know, yeah. elite athletes. So there's the, what I call the woo-woo and the nuts and bolts. And an angle that I think is missing from talking about sleep is, you know, there'll be all this discussion. Here are the stages, and we'll go through all of this, and here's adenosine, sleep pressure, and all the physiology, which is super important. And as we've discussed, people need to have a decent knowledge of that. But then what'll happen is they'll start talking about REM sleep and dreams, and then it's like, they just skip right over that. And there's no real focus on where that, the more philosophical, esoteric components of this crazy liminal thing that we do, every circadian room, that seems to be something a, a different a different silo of expertise so um let's just i'd love to pick you up on the the different stages of sleep but then let's have a bit more chat about REM sleep because i don't think it gets enough yeah so enough let, focus. Let, let's talk about REM. Well, let's talk about stages of sleep first um yeah because i think we're going to go down a little rabbit hole here which is very very non-scientific for me, which I don't talk about a lot, so this is going to be good for me. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, but I no, think No, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk yeah. about it. It's just that in a scientific context, sometimes when I go down the rabbit hole, which I think we're going to go here, is a different rabbit hole. People look at me with crossed eyes going, oh, I didn't think you were one of those people. So you're 
probably going to talk about a lot of stuff that I don't talk about, which will be probably depicted on my bookshelf if you go over there and look at it. Anyway, so let's talk about stages of sleep. So when we have stages of sleep, and this is actually probably, this is the most common mistake that people make when they describe sleep, st- sleep stages. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain these right from the start. The first stage we have of consciousness is being awake. So when we look at a hypnogram, which is basically all the stages of sleep on a graph, the first stage is awake. When you go to bed, you're awake. Then you have what's called stage one, then you have stage two, stage three, and then REM sleep. Okay. Now stage one will be a light stage of sleep, and it'll be characterized by, you know, kind of the the EG. Actually, let me let me back this up because this is, this is really important to look at sleep stages. It's not done by a wearable. It's not done by somebody looking into your eyes. It's not done by somebody licking your forehead. It's not done by a camera in the room. It's actually assessed by the application of electrodes to your head. So you've got EEG on the front, the middle, and the back. You've also got EOG, which is looking at um, ocular movements at the side of your eyes. You also have EMG, which is muscular activity on your chin. And you will also have other stuff as well across the body if you're looking at more stuff. But these are the basic things we need to look at sleep stages. So EEG on looking at the brain. We need something looking at the chin movement as well. And we need eye movements as well. So these are the basic things that we need to assess sleep stages. So when you're looking at a Fitbit or any other sort of device to pick on all of them, <laughs> they're really bad at assessing sleep stages, right? So we need this. This is the gold standard of assessing sleep stages. So when we have these on in a lab and you might see a camera in the room, you think someone's looking at you. The only reason that camera's in there is if you're doing, if you're sleepwalking in the middle of the night or for patient safety. They're not looking through the camera going, he's asleep, he's awake. He's asleep, he's awake. That's not what's happening. It's the electrodes. It's a signal from the electrodes. So in a laboratory, it's like us looking at the matrix. We can see what's actually happening. We can tell exactly when you fall asleep by looking at these brainwave activities. We don't have to look at an actual camera. And that's a big misconception. People think it's all done by some sort of camera. So when people fall asleep, we see the the you know the brain waves could sort of attenuating or or kind of softening out, and then people go into a stage one sleep. And stage one sleep is like anybody feels like when they're falling asleep. You might wake up a little bit. You might have a little bit of disturbance. You can feel yourself drifting off. Stage one is quite quite light. Then you go into stage two. This is a still in the kind of the light stages of sleep, but you're getting a little bit deeper here. And in this stage now, we'll see different things happening in the EEG. We'll see, we'll see what's called sleep spindles. So it's like the EEG needle. If you remember the old, like on TV, we'll go up and down the page. It rapidly goes up and down the page and makes lots of lines up and down. That's like a spindle. And then you might see what's called a K-complex, where it'll actually make a, a shape of a K on the thing and then relax again type of thing, you know, across the page. So these sleep, if you look up stage one or stage two, EEG pains on the on Google, you will see these really easily being shown. Yeah. And then, so, what are the other, I mean, and I know it's not a bright line, but what are the different names for the, there's a, like a different waveform name for each of those stages? Is there... In terms of like alpha and yeah, theta, yeah. yeah. So they'll, they'll, they'll go through those different, um, so the alpha waves will attenuate in stage one. Um, and then, yeah, so you'll have those different kind of, things happen in those stages and then you go from stage one to stage two to stage three and then in stage three you're going to get more kind of what we call these oscillating sort of um you know um 
big wave, a high amplitude, but it's very slow. It's not rapidly moving. It's very like synchronous, is everything. Yeah, it's very kind of just like nice, nice and easy and, and kind of rolling across the page. It looks like kind of like big waves in, in, in my head um, rolling across the page. And that's what's called deep sleep, stage three. A lot of people say that REM sleep is deep sleep. That's completely inaccurate. REM sleep is not deep sleep. Um, REM sleep then is the next stage of sleep, and this is what's dream and sleep. So before we even move to that, stages one, two, and three are collectively called non-REM stages of sleep and non-REM. And predominantly, they happen in the first half of the night. So if you go to bed at 11 p.m., most of the non-REM sleep is going to happen before 3 a.m. And the non-REM sleep is really important for physical repair and recovery. So that's really what's kind of updating the hardware, we'll say, of the body, right? So when we sleep-deprived people in laboratories or sleep-restricted from that period, we see the next day that, you know, mus- muscle soreness is increased. They're not recovering from a physiological perspective in terms of, you know, um, the physical performance the next day. So this is really important to, to sort of repair the hardware, if you want to talk about it like that. Now, these will, you will oscillate in and out of these different stages on average every 90 minutes. But that's going to be completely different for everybody thinks that this 90 minute thing is it happens every night like it's some sort of machine. It's complete bullshit. One paper came out saying on average this happens with a group. So you'll hear people going on talking that every cycle happens in 90 minutes. It doesn't because it depends on what happened the day before, the two days before that, the week before that, sleep disorder, shift work, timing of sleep. There's so many factors. Some people, th- th- those sleep stages are all over the place for people. Uh-huh. Are they linear though? Do you have to go through one, two, three, four? Can no, some people it? jump straight into REM. Right, okay. Yeah, and so people who jump straight into REM will have what's called REM rebound. So people who have been deprived of REM sleep for a long period of time from sleep loss will go straight into that. But traditionally people will kind of go down through these phases and they will, in the first half of the night, they will oscillate predominantly in around between in the stages of non-REM, but they might have some dreaming periods in there as well, the REM periods. And that's what REM is. REM is is dreaming sleep, and that predominantly happens towards the back end of the night. And REM sleep looks identical to being awake. On on your on the, on the EG. On the EG. The yeah. only difference is that the the eyes or EOG is slow moving or slow rolling, and the other thing is that we have no activity in the chin from EMG. So we have basically we have no activity in the body. And the reason that is, is because we don't want people to be dreaming and walking around. And that's what the sleep disorder is of parasomnias or sleepwalking or people getting out and sort of acting out their dreams, you know, getting up and shadow boxing in the room at nighttime. That's because they haven't got what's called muscle atonia and they have that inability to stay kind of flat and moving around. So we don't want to be acting out our dreams. So basically we see the absence of EMG and we see slow rolling movements in the eye. But basically the brain is very, very similar it's what's called sawtooth activity on the alpha waves where we see it happening from EEG, but it's very, very similar to being awake. And so a lot of times you have to look at it and look at the other channels that we're looking at to make sure that that person is actually asleep because it's very, very similar. So when we talk about states of, states of consciousness or unconsciousness, I find it really interesting personally that REM sleep is very, very similar to wake. So rapid eye movement sleep is, is dream and sleep. And so this is basically when, you know, as everybody knows, you have dreams. Sometimes you remember them, sometimes you don't. Some people go to never remember their dreams. They don't have REM sleep. Everybody has REM sleep. You might just, you might just remember it, right? So you might have less than other people. So it should account for, you know, 20 to 25% of your night. 
uh, non-REM sleep should you know it should generally be that that much of you of your night and like I said predominantly happens towards the back end of the night so the REM periods of sleep are really important for um really psychological repair and recovery so if you think about we said non-REM is for the kind of the hard drive of the body and um, this is really now for the you know the the software, co- the, the, software, the cognitive kind of yeah. reboot for the next day and again we know that from studies we've done where we've deprived people of REM sleep and then we see the next day that people just aren't functioning correctly so you might again we spoke about this a little bit earlier you might wake up very early in the morning bad night's sleep and you're kind of a bit doughy you're making mistakes at work whatever it might be you're just feeling a bit off this could be this could be from this to move into the more speculative side of what is REM this is where I'll drop my logic side and I'll go with my more, you know, if we go from logos to mythos and we'll start moving into this kind of um, different arena. Um, I think it might be the practice of death. I think that REM sleep might be the repetition for dying. And I have no... Sci- so I'm going to drop all my scientific references and all my scientific trend in here. And I think if I go here and I have hypothesize about what it is, I think that sleep and the onset of sleep may be the practice of drifting to death. Okay. And what is... Don't ask me any more questions after. <laughs> <laughs> That's at the end of the podcast. We both... <laughs> what... Um, so the practice of death, that's not without its own... Well, th- what, what stimulates my mind in that sense is the psychedelic experience. The phenomenology of that often, what is reported is a type of ego death. So whilst that's not by any means analogous, and I don't necessarily think that's what you're getting at, this this death rehearsal is something which is human beings are the only animals that seem to have a conscious understanding of their own mortality that we know of that we know of exactly yeah um at the time of at the time of writing so tell me unpack that a little bit Um, more okay so why why i think about this so i think it's probably worth saying um before people are speculating like is this guy on drugs or what's going on i was raised an irish catholic not very good at practicing it but always had an interest in probably philosophy and religion i have been a somewhat of a practicing failing buddhist over the last eight to ten years which means i probably fail every day and try and start again the next day um and buddhism really wouldn't be termed as a i wouldn't term it as a religion so to speak it's more like a philosophy and a way of life um i have never taken any psychedelic substances i've never dabbled in them i've never tried with them and i actually think that the more i look at psychedelic research and the more i enter into this world the less likely i am to do it so initially I started kind of bridging the gap with psychedelics out of pure just interest about, you know, listening to people like Ramdas or any other podcasts, um, people from the 60s who had these kind of big psychedelic experiences and went off to the to the East and, you know, did meditation and yoga for a number of years and came back and, and you know, sort of had similar experiences. And then I saw Stephen Bright's paper looking at the comparison between psychedelic usage, microdosing, um, meditation, yoga and so on. And I thought that's really interesting because it's just another pathway to the, to the divine, so to speak, or the energy, if you want to call it that. And uh, when I use the word God in this conversation, I'm not talking about some guy sitting in the cloud dishing out punishment or gifts to different people. I'm talking about more 
like Star Wars, like a more like an energy force, I think is is how I would describe it for me personally. Um so I think with that, that's how kind of that's how I got more interested in, in this area. And the more I look at psychedelics and the more I look at the psychedelic community, the less likely I'm I, I want to do it. Um and so the reason is because I think it's a very uh it's a very pretty weird and unique group with respect. And I'm not sure that psychedelics is the catch all and uh, and the cure for all, which it often gets spoken about. A lot of people will, you know, talk about Joe Rogan says this, oh, psychedelics can do this and blah, blah, blah. I'm not really sure that's the case. I think there's limited research in that. I think people like Richard Albert and Timmy Leary kind of fucked it up in the 60s for us and we're getting back onto the the, the building blocks of that. So I think that's that's part that's part one of it. So we can obviously come back to that in a moment. But why I think that maybe REM sleep is a practice of death is because if you start looking into Tibetan Buddhism a bit more, um, there's the whole thing about the bardos. If people have ever heard of the bardos. So the bardos um, in Tibetan Buddhism goes for a period of somewhere around seven weeks or 49 days. And there's these different stages that you pass through when you die. And it's like your progression into the you know, into this kind of, for want of a better word, these different spheres or states of of being before you get reborn. And so generally you get reborn within a 49-day period if you believe in karma and life after death and, and whole rebirth. So what's interesting about that is that the, the belief in Tibetan Buddhism through those different phases, you have consciousness or some ability to connect with this world. That's also articulated in, in lots of research as well, like about near-death experiences where people feel themselves drifting away into this new, like step one or phase one of that, and they can still see themselves in this world, lying on an operating table, under a car, whatever it might be. And then sometimes the, well, obviously if they're going to report a near-death experience, they have to come back, they haven't gone on, but they feel this sense of connectivity and oneness and so on. So I think there might be a relationship there. We also go to sleep every night and close our eyes and we go completely unconscious. So where does Niall go when he falls asleep every night? The concept of the entity, the entity that continues across time. That yeah. You know, so where is, where is Niall? Yeah. And ev- and every day and every day it is actually like a mini life and death. Yeah. It's what. So you think there's a. So let me. I'm gonna see if I've got the right end of the stick here. There's almost like. In every 24 hour period. There is a there's a time when the Wi-Fi signal that was Nile was ostensibly turned off. Yeah, it's just not wasn't wasn't there in any in any measurable way. This is outside the you're you're of, unplugged from you're the metrics. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're just not there. But <clears throat> I suppose my point, like the thing about REM sleep, is I I wouldn't characterize it as like an absence of phenomenology. Quite the opposite. So in terms of when I'm dreaming. In a way, am I not even more conscious? But where are you? <laughs> so that's the thing. Your body might be here, but where are you? And and by the way, I'm not asking these questions. These are the questions that I ask to myself. And this is not something that's discussed in the sleep science field. If you went to a sleep science conference, you wouldn't hear these questions. These are more questions that probably get debated in philosophy or psychology or sociology. I think that that's a sort of a... F- and that's why I wanted to pick you up on that because and I wanted to demonstrate that it's entirely possible for someone to be 
a, a materialist in scientifically, professionally, personally, you know, live a normal life, be a, you know, functioning, contributing part of society, happy part of society. And be a fucking lunatic at the same time. <laughs> Dennis McKenna uh, describes, he's very, seems like a solid scientist. He describes himself as a scientist nested with inside a mystic, which I just don't necessarily think that, I've changed my tune on that. And I think I, I have had psychedelic experiences legally in, in with um, truffles in, in, Hall, in Amsterdam, in, outside Amsterdam, which where it's legal there to do. Um, so I can speak about them legally. Uh, and your colleague on your podcast, on the Learning Today podcast, talks about epistemic humility. And I think that was like an uppercut to my... I know the way the cold wind blows. So all all of a sudden, I find that you don't need to... I personally haven't found any need to cling to tenaciously to materialism in order to continue to live and function and believe in science and... And I think of it as, as as the most powerful tool that we have, and I don't like that it gets thrown away too dismissively by people who are, you know, radical, <coughs> far too metaphysical, and just repudiate science. But by no means would anyone who I think is a decent thinker say, "Oh well, I'm not going to consider philosophy or these more esoteric things," because science, I think, is born out of that. Like, like, oh, exactly. And I think it's. I- I think you can have the whole the, those two opposing things can be true at the one time. You can be a materialist and a scientist on your left hand, and you can be, you can think about these broader questions and these esoteric things if you want to call them um, call them that, or you can go on these crazy benders because it's that sort of awe and wonder, as Carl Sagan said, that's going to drive you or inspire you to find out these questions. Because if you don't sit, yeah, if you don't sit there and think about these things, you know, maybe we don't have the measurement tools to to measure it right now. Um, you know, at the start of the podcast, we spoke about the the vapor from the stomach. You probably laugh at that, yeah. But back then, that was the most plausible excuse, or sorry, a reason, not an excuse. And that was the opening. That was the opening sentence in the conversation that probably led to you know, yeah, stages of sleep or whatever. So this is that's the primordial weird shit. So if people think, oh, there's esoteric postulations and then science they're not understanding the chronology which is like that's where every every hypothesis has at some point or another been some some guy if you drink a coffee today with milk in it some guy once said i wonder what happens if i put my hands under this cow and start going like yeah that. yeah <laughs> what the fuck was he and what the fuck was he <laughs> yeah, yeah. and now milk is a norm the most normal of things so to come that's just a little caveat to i feel free to talk about this and it doesn't mean that you're you have to like hand in your scientific credentials in any shape or form. So I think like um, coming back on this, why I think it's about dying, because I think this is a good thing to explore. The other thing as well is if we think about going to bed every night and we close our eyes and where does Nile go, right? So maybe you go to a different plane of consciousness. Maybe that's reality. Yeah, my mistress's house. And this is a, <laughs> this is a dream. <laughs> yeah, check your Uber receipts. But maybe maybe that's reality yeah. and this is a dream. And you're poking your head back into that world, which is true reality. And this is a dream. Yeah. Right. You don't actually know. And nobody can say with certainty. Sure. And people will argue, but you've got more memory here and so on and so on. But no, no one really knows what happens when that happens, when you go to those states. It's just like when people take psychedelics, do meditation, do yoga. People report getting to these higher states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness. Maybe maybe the word not higher, but altered. People experience the same things doing long distance runs, long distance swims, sleep deprivation. I think there is multiple paths to 
the divine, if you want to call it that, or the energy system, whatever it is, or to some state of personal inquiry or personal enlightenment. Because when I sit with people who have done shitloads of psychedelics, they've had the same experiences I have had doing meditation on silent retreats. So which is right and which is wrong? Is a psychedelic just a catapult to the top of the mountain that gets them there? But then they come back down to do the meditation work? Or are we just all kind of coming in different doors to the one thing? We're all walking in this forest at different junctures. Yeah, different, different, different time points, different junctions into it. But the other thing is, coming back to this then, I really think that whilst there's all different pathways in, I think I have this strong feeling about you're saying like in a 24-hour period because think about the sun comes up it's light it's bright like it is today it'll get dark later on seasons feel like we you know get reborn in the season we have winter like being dead we have spring like new life summer is like that peak of the life autumn is declining we have that in a day 24-hour day as well but we seem to have divorced ourselves from that a bit I think as humans and we don't think about that intricate cycle. And it's a bit like what's happening at the moment, which I've spoken about on other podcasts, is with the whole coronavirus. I still don't think people are realizing the fact that you're going to die. Yeah. People, there's this immortality complex that has coupled with coronavirus, which I find really fascinating, which people are like, oh, can you believe that a poor man digested from coronavirus? He was 92 and had serious underlying heart conditions. I'm like... Man, like at that age, you probably die of a fart. Like if I get to 92 and I die from the flu, I'd be like, fuck, I did all right. Yeah, it was good innings. Good innings, I'm past the age. So I, I just feel like there's this aversion towards death in our society. Not to say that I'm not afraid of it either, because I am. But this aversion towards that. Ernest Becker talks about this in Denial of Death, which we've covered on the Learn It Die podcast. This aversion towards that. There's this inability to live authentically every day about, even with the shit, which we spoke to Gordon Reno yesterday about, with his book, Existential uh, Survival Guide. And I think, I'm rambling here a bit, but I think there needs to be, if we think about sleep as the process for dying, every time you go to sleep, you're getting one stage or one step more to dying. You're counting down the days. So really what should be happening is the inverse opposite relationship. We should be enjoying those days more. Uh, yeah. And let me just, if you've, there's so many different strands, it's so interesting what you've said. The and this isn't me trying to reduce down what you've said to fit into some materialist paradigm. I'll reduce but, away. <laughs> yeah, but it, the, whenever you're talking about the life cycle, it made me think. We have a you know there's a sleep cycle. There's a life cycle, which you know for the organism is whatever. Uh, consult your actuary tables, but you know seventy to eighty, ninety years. That could be fractal in the sense that you know you've you've got a twenty four hour life cycle. So Niall is here right now chatting to you. Tonight, this version of Niall is going to, or this day's Niall is going to ostensibly die. I wake up tomorrow as a new person. Um, and you know how up and up and down that dimensionality you want to go in terms of, you know, that you could very easily sort of articulate a day as a, a cycle and a, you're a different person the next day, you know, and you'll, you'll see that. Yeah, in especially with kids, you see that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get they're enough sleep, yeah. They're a different person. So what I would, the way that I would think, I mean, this is, just my opinion but whenever you're saying about that REM sleep and, and the dreams that you have when it are um, 
not so much a dress rehearsal, but a, for death. Would that be a way that you would characterize yeah, it? A dress I, I, rehearsal I think for it, death. I think it's it's a process of of getting used to being at ease to drift away. If anybody's done lots of meditation, or I presume the same on psychedelics, you feel this sensory breakthrough, and you have this oneness, right? So I've had this on silent retreats, or even meditating at home, or even through hypnotherapy, where I felt this state of consciousness or oneness or I'm everything and I'm nothing. There's no time. There's no anything. And it's such a comfortable place to be. And it's not like I'm sitting there embedding in light with other beings. It's black. But I'm everything and I'm nothing. And I can't describe it. It's so hard. My consciousness is outside of my body. I'm observing the observer. I'm completely off of this planet, so to speak. But on the journey there, I do go through different stages of light. From deep purple to white to kind of yellowy to there. And I've had that meditating, but I've also had that same sense doing long distance running. Yeah. Where I've run for 100 100Ks yeah. or more. Yeah. And you're fucked and you're sleep deprived and you're running like for like 20 odd hours and then you get this kind of you take a breath and it's like you're just drinking in some sort of crazy vitamin or something I don't know you just feel energized and you're running and you're on the side of a mountain and it's the middle of the night and you just feel like you're connected to everything and it's this unbelievable like connectivity with everything. Is that the appeal of For me it is, yeah. yeah. For me it was doing that. Now my body sort of just kind of broke down over years. And I think I think by I spoke to a guy called Christopher Ives who's brought a book called Zen on the Trail. He's a Buddhist philosopher in the US. I spoke to him briefly on email and I want to try and catch up with him. Um he speaks about this and I've also used similar stuff like kind of ritualistic around this. There's also a group of monks in Japan that do this called the Marathon Monks. And they run around basically for nearly a year doing this. And I think there's something in that. I think it's just another way of getting to this altered state of consciousness. So I think I was doing a true... I think initially I was doing it to try and see, like, basically, you know, how fucking tough I am. Can I do this? Am I a pussy? All these questions that you would ask yourself as a man. But through that, I actually found that I was getting into these places of complete tranquility where I just felt a sense of oneness. And last year as well, I swam to Rottnest, which is a 20K swim in the ocean. And I had the same feeling again. There's something about a certain period or a certain time. It seems to be somewhere around 70% into an event. And it has to be longer than a marathon distance for me, where I just get into this flow state, where I just feel this connectivity. And I don't know whether it's pure tiredness, because it's not a sleep deprivation thing, because like, that swim took seven hours, so it's not a sleep deprivation thing. Um, but there's just some liminal. Yeah, I, I I can't describe it. You just feel a sense of oneness with stuff, and it's the same in meditation, but different. And obviously, you're conscious when you're doing these activities during the day, like swimming or running or so on. I get in martial arts a bit as well. So I do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You get these days where you're just in this kind of flow state. You know, and it's not about winning or losing. You're just in this flow where you're just nearly like you're reading the other person's mind. And it's, it's, there's something liberating about that. I don't know what it is. 
the through line that I'm hearing from all of these various interests and pursuits, I would call them, some of which you do for inverted quotes fun and some you do for money you know what I mean yeah, but yeah, they're yeah, all yeah. there's no real there's, there's not a lot there's of linkage no, or overlap, there's, there's yeah. no distinction <clears throat> there's this it seems like they, they all have a transcendent quality to them at some point or another and is that there's something about sleep which on a regular basis helps us transcend you know the world that we're in right now and gets us used to the fact that it's like look this world that you occupy is is not all that there is, you know, the, the material reality that you can yeah. reach out and touch. There's more to life than this. And whether you find that, once that veil's pulled back, it, I don't think it ever really fully closes over again. And so I don't do those things, but I can, but it's almost, it feels like when you're talking about your, you know, 70% into the, the 100k run or 100 mile run or you know, 17Ks across the, out to Rottnest. That does feel, that is very intimately connected to the feelings that I've had on, on, on psilocybin. Um, just a sort of gentle relaxing. And the thing of it is it feels realer than real. And it also feels hauntingly familiar. Yes, and it's like you're sinking into it. You're sitting into a gro- an ass groove in a chair that's already there. It's so comfortable and so... It's so right that it doesn't... It's hard to describe, but it just feels like this is what I'm meant to be doing at this time or this is where I'm meant to be. It just feels natural. And maybe maybe because we've become, from a physical sense, maybe we've just come so far away from what we were designed to do. We live in this world of materialism and ease and comfort and you know we get pissed off if we don't get you know an extra 10 minutes sleep or you know we got heating or air con on demand we get mad in the society we live in and it's not to detract from all those problems but we do have a pretty easy yeah so it's almost how can i put this you're it seems like you're finding your place in the universe when you're in those or you're just part of it you're just melting into yeah but actually yeah you're right it does it makes me feel like I have a place in the universe but also makes me think that I have nothing in this universe <laughs> yeah because I, I realise how insignificant I am and how it's like looking at a picture on the wall like look at that picture on the wall there right I've got a picture hanging on my wall here of New York the flat iron building and I think you can buy them in Ikea for $100, so it's not that fancy. But look at all those windows in that picture, right? There's all these big apartment blocks um, in there. Look at all those. There must be there must be 500 windows in there. What's going on behind, behind every one of those 500 windows? You know, and that's, that's, what, that's what makes me feel like. It's like I'm just like a, a window or even a pixel within that picture. I'm part of something that makes up a broader thing. But really, individually, I'm insignificant. I play my role broadly, but really, I'm insignificant. And that's how I, that's how I feel now. I, f- I don't feel this sense of... I don't feel this sense of grandeur or I'm so special or I felt like that. I feel quite the opposite. I feel like... I feel like, you know what? It dissolves my ego in a different way, where you're not as good as you think you are. You're not as big as you think you are. 
get back there and just fucking live your life like ethically and just be just and every time I come back from those things it makes me connect more with people connect more with not things but connect more with this world but also over the last probably year or so I've just started to it's really taken and this could be a function of age as well it's really taken the edge off me through a lot of meditation and yoga where I just start coming back to more love and compassion and that's not like I'm walking around like kissing everybody and hey man hey everything's funky everything's groovy but even if I'm dealing with an asshole in a work situation or I'm dealing with an asshole in some aspect of my life, I just try to have a bit more compassion for that person and understand what's going on behind that. The, whenever you were talking about your, you have a, a, pretty, a pretty impressive esoteric CV of ways to get to those sorts of feelings, you know, through all these pursuits. Um, I agree with you on that you know, analogy, I don't know who originally said it, um, uh, about, you know, the sort of bullet train to the top of the mountain with regards to certain psychedelics. I I agree with that, um, but I think it is important for some people to know that there's a a there there. There's something it makes, it it sort of incentivizes and contextualizes all of these different pursuits. So it's quite common for people to have an experience like one that you described on say MDMA or or psilocybin and then come back and just with no real you know it's not they don't write it on the to-do list but they just find themselves having more of a proclivity to meditate more of a realization that they need to connect with other people improve their relationships there's just this thought of how do I embody this on a more regular basis because you can't wake up every morning and take a heroic dose of of mushrooms so my my kind of challenge to that thing because I've I've had that same discussion in my own head about myself. Maybe I should just go and do this and see what's on the top of it. It's like getting the cable car to the top of the mountain and looking down and going, oh yeah, now I can see the path. I'll go back down and do that. So I've had that conversation in my head and I've spoke to some people about it. And here's one of the things I don't like about the psychedelic community at the moment. Everybody views it as if that's going to be a positive experience. Right, so everybody views it through the lens of, and this is something in some of the talks I've listened to, some of the presentations, I hear everything being positive, 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 positive. I don't hear any negativity. And that worries me when we don't have negativity, pushback, challenge, or debate. Because I wonder, what happens if I go and do DMT and I get to that position, but I freak the fuck out? Or if I go on that journey through these layers of consciousness and go up, if all the good things can happen through psychedelics, we've got to assume that all the bad things can happen as well. Because to quote Nietzsche, beyond good and evil, but where there is good, there is evil. So you might go and do DMT, have an enlightened experience, come back, feel great, change your life. I might go there and I might see every dark fucking entity that ever existed or ever will exist. And I come back and I have to go into Greyland's mental home. All right. So I've heard stories because I've researched not um, through the scientific literature, but through personal accounts, talking to different people, I've heard of experiences of people being mentally unwell after this. So this, this, this really worries me. The other thing as well is that I think that this isn't going to be for everybody because if we look at the pillars of health, nutrition, physical health, sleep, um, all of these things, mental health, all of these things have to be really key going into these experiences, which I think by virtue of exercise you're going to do, right? You have to have them dialed in just to enable that. 
you were at that talk by David O'Shaughnessy, the anthropologist, a few weeks ago. Um, so I spoke to David actually one on one afterwards, had lunch with him and spoke about this. And one of the things that struck me about David's presentation in, in the South American context of things like ayahuasca and DMT and so on was the whole ritualistic thing of a, the diet, the preparation, the scene, the setting. And even people that were given placebos had the same experiences from that ritualistic aspect, which I think is missing from Western culture, right? Our ritualistic um, thing at 18 is go out and get pissed, right? And then you're a man and sort of you move on. So I get worried sometimes that maybe getting catapulted to the top of the mountain or the bullet train may not be the best for everybody. And that some people may need to explore these more safer options of getting there first. And then if they wish to, through a framework, go on the bullet train. But where is the framework these days that I I don't know, maybe there is one. If if there is one, please let me know. I'm not making this as a kind of a you know, an aggressive stance or I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but I'm this is pure inquiry. Where is the framework for me to self assess myself if I should take DMT, psilocybin, MDMA and so on? And I've heard this other phrase as well that I'm like people go, There's no such thing as a bad trip. There's only a challenging trip. Yeah, no, I is. disagree. I think there I, is a bad trip. I, you know, this is my whole, this is my focus really, um, Ian, because I very much agree with you. Um, and so I, I don't want to give the representation that I'm like, okay, everyone get on the bullet train and then come back and then yeah. we'll start you at a, you know, mindfulness retreat. And this is me going off the rails from any sort of scientific background. If someone said to me, and I've worked as a psychotherapist with a trauma focus for a long time, and they said, I have stuff to work on, I'm only vaguely aware of it, and the word that I use is a fancy word, but Jung's circumambulating, you know, I'm, you're circling something that you don't know, so that's, that, that type of experience is, in my therapeutic experience, has been fairly indicative of people coming with, with trauma. Uh, big T or small T trauma and they have a, a, a very healthy wariness about this and when I hear other people like saying uh, oh you know just everyone should do this and we should we should put this in the water and every politician should take it I think you are a child of summer you need to just be quiet for a while because the thing that I would want people to be armed with it's not scientific if they're going into a psychedelic experience, a portal, as I see it, is as clear a conscience as they can possibly have. And the model that com- that comes from is um, is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. They talk about a moral inventory. So if people are going deep into their own psyches, yeah, you might climb to the top of the big tree that is your psyche, or you might go down to the ta- you might go down the tap route to the very <laughs> base, and you have to know that the price of admission is that you can you can land anywhere, and it doesn't really seem to be that dose dependent. So, if I would envisage the, the optimal model for uh, to to bring people towards psychedelics is you're going to come to a residential facility, and we are going to have a team of people who work with you, and we're going to try minimum effective dose we're going to see everything that we don't have a dog in the fight about psychedelics we're going to make sure that your depression is not a metabolic derangement we're going to make sure your sleep's on point we're going to make sure that you've tried all of these other more um, contemplative practices 
we're going to be very logistics and say, how are your relationships with your kids? You know, are there any major fractures? Where is what happened in your past that you're consciously aware of? And make all those sorts of amends. And then, because what I'm afraid of is that a lot of people will not go through that process or it'll be mapped onto the clinical model and everyone's so materially focused on it being on the PBS or let's get all the psychiatrists. And it's like you're sending out a bunch of fucking gardeners into a war. And what I want is to help people become warriors in gardens. That's the difference. So I hear you loud and clear. And I think that the risks which then are going to get mapped onto a medical model of, well, this person develops schizophrenia or whatever. I'm like, the the most appropriate language is psychospiritual for me when, when people are voicing concerns. And I think you don't know what you're sending people into. So you, the only thing you can do before you put them in the octagon of their own psyche is make sure that the boot camp was, was enough. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. that's my little spiel on that. I, I agree. And, I, I, and it, it would seem that maybe... You know that I'm, I'm trying to. Oh well, there's a guy that just doesn't want psychedelics to get out there. Let me be very clear. I don't give a fuck what people do. I'm a pure libertarian. Do what you want to do. Sit on the middle of the street naked playing bongo drums. Once you're not annoying me, but come nine o'clock and I'm going to bed, you better not be annoying me, right? So that might be a very personalized view of the world for me. But I really don't care what people do. I'm all for people doing whatever they want to do. You've heard me talk about science here already, esoteric stuff about people dying. Um, you know, that sleep is maybe a process for dying. You'll hear me talk about running, martial arts. I can hold five opposing viewpoints, you know, at the one time and grapple with them. It's not that I have the answers and my mind is certainly not set on anything. I am completely open to all new ideas. But what I just don't want to see is people... When people say to me, this is the answer, this is the one thing, and if only everybody did this, that's when alarm bells ring to me. So when people say that, I generally say to them, run the opposite way, because you know what comes after that, Nile, Is someone selling you something. This is the best thing to do, and you can buy it here. And that's what I'm afraid is going to happen. In the, after um, David's talk a few weeks ago, I thought to myself, wow, if we legalize drugs in this country, we might go down... And I'm going to talk about legalizing psychedelics. If we legalize this, we might go down a very slippery road here because what's going to happen is, and don't, don't, let's not kid ourselves, Big Pharma is like a bunch of fucking sharks sitting on the side ready to get into this. Plus, people like the, the groups like the AMA and so on will try to regulate this as much as possible. So there is pathways, and, I, and I, there will be good pathways for assessing people, like you were saying, like a more integrative, holistic approach. There'll be pathways too. But um, which which is helpful, but there'll be also also pathways that are linked with Medicare numbers, rebates. You have to go to your GP. You have to go here. You have to do that, and you may be going down a road of doing psilocybin within three days without having any of this proactive, preventative stuff about is your sleep dialed in, what's your weight like, what's your relationships like, what's going to happen after you take psilocybin. Is your sleep going to be disrupted for two or three nights? So here's one for you, right? So I've been looking at the sleep and. This is the angle I've taken on, on psychedelics and drug use. I'm worried about what's this going to do to someone's sleep. Yes. Right? So I'm worried about if people take these, these, these substances, what's going to happen to their sleep in the 24 hours, 48, 72, and even seven days? So more that acute kind of dose response, what's going to happen to their sleep? When I looked at the literature for this, there is very few papers around there. There's a, some done in the 60s and 70s when sleep medicine wasn't really that advanced. But recently, someone has done a paper in the Czech Republic. 
and I'm going to have this person on, I think her name is Danielle, or Danielle, sorry if I pronounced her name wrong, in October to talk about this paper. And it was an awesome paper where it looked at basically giving people psilocybin in the morning or amphetamine at 9 a.m. and seeing what the effect on sleep was. So overnight, there was no effect on, I think there was like a small delay for the time to person, to, for the time to get into REM sleep, very small delay what we call REM latency for the psilocybin person, but the person doing amphetamines, oh, fucking bounce around like a frog all night, which, you know, even after taking at nine o'clock in the morning. So their sleep was really disrupted. No surprise there. People looked at and go, okay. But I want to know is what's going on in the 48 hours, 72 and the seven days afterwards. My co-host Karen spoke about this on Learning to Die when he did DMT. Every time he fell asleep for five nights after that, he would go straight back into that trip. So how many people are going back to that experience having sleep disturbances, sleep problems after that? And then more importantly, can't make sense of what's going on afterwards and can't integrate that into their life. So then maybe they need that to support, someone to talk to, but then there's that part of it. But then there's also, what if someone isn't sleeping correctly? Are they then putting themselves at risk the next day of driving? Are they walking around kind of their head up their ass? They're not in a fit state to work because they're completely, you know, disconnected from their body even if, if, if every physiological measure was bog standard you know <clears throat> and the guy in the white coat signs off and says no you know everything's fine you know sleep architecture's back to normal or whatever there's no bright line in the sand but between me between having a physiological shock and an ontological shock so you're yeah. in a completely different headspace and you're thinking fuck me uh, I don't care what the physiology says and this might be my bias but you know, someone's taking DMT on a on a um, on a Friday and think I'll just go back to work on a Monday. And you know, and they're in a Zoom call. You know, the court yeah, yeah, airport yeah. at twelve. Yeah. There's a sort of the analogy that draws in my mind is the difference that they noted between um, PTSD incidents after different wars, and one of the big factors which seemed to modulate that was how quickly the people returned to their you know yeah. home life. So. In the past, they were on a, literally a slow boat back and all of a sudden they'd maybe integrated the experience a little bit more, looked out over the ocean in a slow boat. Yeah, a bit of time, a bit of space, bit of yeah. Versus coming back from, you know, Helmand Province on a Thursday and the, and the kids are screaming in the back of the, in some Illinois Kmart on Wednesday and, you know, car Which backfires and they're, yeah. going f- and they're going absolutely yeah. ballistic. So these types of time frames, which will, I mean, I think I'm I, we're on the same page there where it's like you just don't want people to be coming back to normal, normal life very quickly and thinking that you can somehow just jump back out onto the high street after these experiences. And I would say to people who are maybe doing DMT, psilocybin in a home environment at the moment, because we know that people are doing it, I would say to you before you do it um, right now, in the absence of any sort of evidence out there, you know, or what's been depicted is exactly that. Make some space. Don't do it on a Wednesday if you've got to go out to work on Thursday. At least give, do it on a Friday and then give yourself till the Monday. Allow yourself to focus on good sleep in the nights preceding that as well. Be aiming to get nine to ten hours in bed to allow you to get eight to nine hours of sleep, right? So that's like going to bed at 10 a.m. Sorry, going to bed at 10 p.m. and getting up at, you know, maybe 6, 7, 7 a.m. the next morning. Allowing yourself adequate time. Maybe, you know, reduce caffeine intake, other stimulants, reduce the noise in your life, prepare yourself for that, get as enough, enough rest as possible and reduce that noise. And then after you've done that experience on a Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, 
don't plan in any crazy activities allow yourself to integrate that in get restorative sleep afterwards and make sure then you know that you're kind of giving yourself that time to to rest and recuperate after because we don't really know what's going on and the other thing i'd say is well if if you have any sleep problems such as insomnia or you've got like obstructive sleep apnea or any of these other sleep disorders that you think you may have maybe doing this at this time may not be the right thing that's uh, the whole preparation side of things people talk about preparation and integration and i think what they they conflate that with meaning psychological preparation and integration and that's like talking about music but you're just talking about guitar based music you're like what about fucking djs and jamba drums and everything so preparation includes that holistic sense of if somebody has you know if you saw someone coming along and you you could probably just pick them off the street uh, it's like that person has sleep apnea i can tell they have sleep apnea is it a good idea for them to what should they do next should they go and to holland and take a psilocybin trip and then you get they should maybe just focus on losing some weight and standardizing their sleep i think helping people to stabilize their sleep and be better sleepers would be one of the best preparatory strategies for going maybe on psychedelic you know retreats because the capacity to memory consolidate and, and just integrate the experience i can imagine that having good quality sleep in the in your back pocket is one of the most useful tools to do that for sure and and um dave O'Shaughnessy gave me an name of a guy that basically was been speaking about this recently that may, before you and i have to contact him that basically before you do an ayahuasca experience one of the biggest kind of inputs into it is to get good sleep in the nights proceeding it. which because if you are going to be up all night puking and having these visions and all that you want to be in a good headspace to do it, right? Because you're like you're like an SAS soldier. You're like a special forces operative. You're going in here to, a, to the jungle of your mind, right? You know, and so you're going in there and you're going to meet some dark demons or whatever it might be or grapple with some stuff. So you need to be ready to go in there, right? So that's why it's really important to get that sleep beforehand. The, the thing you said there about maybe somebody, you know, having OSA or a sleep problem and then doing, you know, some sort of psychedelic, it might be twofold. Because some people may not be able to lose weight, deal with that problem, whatever it is. And the psychedelic experience might catapult them to go, you know what, I need to get my shit in order. But again, I think it's about having more of a risk framework that we can apply to people and go, right, you have this issue. The dose response is going to, the dose is going to be, you know, X amount. We're going to see what happens and we'll gradually increase it. And then we'll see what happens. And then we'll see what experiences you have out of that. A bit like the PTSD, MDMA therapy. So what's it? PTSD soldiers in america are being given mdma with cognitive behavioral therapy to help them integrate it where then they're able to work through those problems so i think it maybe that's the first step for somebody that's maybe got some problems we'll say physiologically or got to do with weight or got to do with sleep problems is we do a very your kind of level one but then you might bring in you know the psychedelic astronaut so to speak that's been on 50 missions and you go right you're going down channel four you're going to be catapulted to the he- heavens and you know the process, you're going to fast for 24 hours, we're going to talk about this, we're going to check in where you are, you know, and he or she's able to do this, and they might just do it once a year, where the other person is on an ongoing once-a-week type of thing, maybe. It, it sounds like, you know... The, it's the like metaf- a triage. It's a tri- yeah, yeah. You're, you're everyone... <clears throat> I mean, and again, I'm just I think imagining, you know, out loud here, but let's say, I, I think, and this is my bias, but the uh, if you were to look in the future and say, okay... We've got everything to schedule it. Everything's prescribable. This is integrated into the medical model. What type, what genre of psychedelic treatment center is producing the best results? I would 
argue, and this will exist. This is a timestamp. I think it will be residential. I think it'll it'll just be a niche market, but residential facilities for the very reason that they can provide oversight. Would you disagree? No, or? I would agree. I think it would be the safest as well. But I think again, um, if we're looking at residential models, they have to be more. They don't have. They have to be. They have to be residential um, with the ability to have some autonomy. So what I'm thinking about or envisaging would be, it's not like a hospital ward where you got four people packed into a room. Over the cookies nest. It's not yeah. like that at all. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I don't even think it's like a row of rooms with someone up and down with a trolley. I think it might be like a series of little like chalets or apartments. Private, private, private rooms. I used to work in a private rehab. Yeah, so I think it's more like that. that. It's more like, um, it's more like that. It's more like a little hotel where you may have some shared spaces for meditation, yoga, exercise, group therapy, individual therapy. It's more like a little village and network um, where people can come together to kind of have this, you know, experience, process, treatment, whatever you want to call it. So I think the more, you call it residential, but I think people should not envisage a medical residential I, facility. I, I'm, I suppose that's my own, uh, you know, my lexicon. is, And I'll link to two things. This is a stamp uh, reminder for me. I've written an article about loneliness, which hits at that the community element, which is at uh, the one of the biggest, another huge lever I think, sleep and community. If you're lonely and poorly slept, you're you're unwell. Uh, and then I'll link to the rehab that I actually used to work at because when I think residential, I have I, I know that I'm imagining you're more of a chalet, you know, villa yeah, type yeah, place. Yeah. But I do appreciate that people when they think of residential mental health facilities are probably thinking of more padded rooms that's the modal yeah, answer yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I want to make very clear I think that is I'm worried about that I'm worried that if it fits into the medical model it's like yeah you know let's understand that this you can't have bright overhead lights and beeping noises and just your average hospital ward that exactly, is a, yeah, a yeah. fucking terrible environment yeah. to yeah, take yeah. that's not what you want yeah, that yeah. is the yeah. worst I can't imagine anywhere worse um, but what I'm envisaging is you know, no two people are on the same protocol, and it's it's like a uh, maybe it's well, it's personalized. It, it's totally yeah. personalized, and it's super personalized. And maybe you come now, if it caused me no issue, obviously, then people say, "Oh, but that's not that's not amenable for everyone." I'm not necessarily thinking about this being the you work with elite athletes. It's like the things that you're able to do for say the, the Australian rugby team or the Formula One. That's not going to be your bog standard Sunday League team the way they prepare. But that's the. The, we're trying to make the best outcomes and then people can learn from that. People can appropriate that at the level of comfort and resources that they have. A residential model, people come in advance. They have a very bespoke, tailor-made pre- preparatory strategy where it's like, let's go, let's find out what your chronotype is. Let's let's find out, you know, what your all your various things is. You have a whole team of experts who come in. It's like, this is your baseline. This is where you're at right now. Here's what you want to work on. And only after you've exhausted those more run-of-the-mill, not run-of-the-mill, but the more uh, mainstream versions, I would envisage that there'd be lots of people if they come and they have all these existential crises and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm sleeping better. It turns out I'm a night owl. I'm not a morning lark. I've lost a bit of weight. I've prepared a relationship with, you know, my dad. I've um, I changed jobs. I'm now working here. I worked with a PA to sort all that. My life's all sorted out. Do you want to take psychedelics? I'm good. I don't qualify for the diagnosis anymore. So I think there will be some people, there needs to be more off-ramps before before the, the psychedelic community is like, okay, cool, it's good for this, it's good for this, it's good for this. A first-line first, first line treatment, I for the reasons that you've outlined, even if it's one in a thousand person, 
people doesn't come back, I think that's irresponsible for us to advocate them as first line treatments. Yeah, I agree. And I think this kind of, these discussions probably need to happen more about where the future of this will go in Australia or other countries because, like I said, listening to talks and going to some presentations, I'm just worried that it's going to be, it's not as bad as Timothy Leary and Richard Albert going, let's put LSD in the water and having a chart on the wall going, we can enlighten everybody in 10 years. I don't think it's like that, but there is a sort of a pure positive, this is all good, nothing bad's going to come of this. There seems to be a lack of reality and i that's probably not a good word to say not a lack of reality but a lack of big pharma is going to get involved medicare medical systems the naivety maybe naivety people are going to try and make money off of this um you know there's there's big money in this stuff there is there is big big money in this and i think the trojan horse will be and i said this to steve bright as well will be cbd research that would be the gateway that would allow the rest of them to come in. But if you look at CBD research, which has just been, I suppose, approved here in Australia, some of the research that's happening there is costing like $1 million, $2 million to run in a laboratory looking at different elements of, you know, insomnia or pain or whatever it might be. This is big money getting spent. And they'll just come in and steamroll through the whole thing. And it won't be the case of like, oh, yeah, weed is legal, so you can just grow your own and do what you want. I don't think it's going to get like that. I think it's still going to be highly regulated and highly controlled. And it might even have more control associated with it than we have now, than, than what people think. You know, I, I just think that, I just don't think, I, I don't think that if it gets legalized, so to speak, that it's going to be perfect. I think that people may be more pissed off in five years if these drugs get legalized and be like, oh, this is bullshit. Look what happened here. All this regulation and pathways. We can't do what we used to do. And the fines might even be bigger or the prison sentences if people are using them outside of the context of having a prescription or being approved or whatever. They might, they, they might, they might, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here about what may happen. Well, uh, like if any, let's call it like an infant industry, as long as all the different strands are allowed to continue alongside each other, because some will empirically bomb out and be like that was a terrible idea this model didn't work but as what i'm afraid of is monopoly and dogma those are the two things i'm afraid of if if there's no monopoly from whether it's big pharma or some ideological stance starts to you know really knuckle down on this and say we control psychedelics um, whether it's a therapeutic modality or a couple of big really big companies it doesn't really matter as long as everyone's allowed to think freely and uh experiment then we are i think we do have to accept that there's going to be some absolute dead ends some cul-de-sacs that we wish we hadn't gone down um and we could be in for another um you know richard nixon type experience where everything just goes back in the box but i think that what might happen is it will stratify and lots of questions will be asked certain approaches will be much more successful than others and as long as we're all able to look with hindsight on that evidence and say dispassionately I had this dog in a fight it didn't work but this guy over here did this and it was far more effective as long as we're all able to be collegiate about it and scientific about it I think there will be terrible outcomes and amazing outcomes um, I just want to um, conscious of your time but I want to pick your brains about how THC and CBD um, interface with sleep 
because I don't have any good understanding of that and maybe unpack those terms. So, um, so obviously CBD being the cannabinoids, and this is an area I've researched, but I interviewed somebody last week about this, Dr. Jennifer Walsh down at University of Western Australia, because they just ran a study looking at the impact of CBD on insomnia. So basically, if you think about CBD being the cannabinoids, non-psychoactive component, and then THC being the psychoactive component. So a lot of times when people talk about, you know, giving people and um, giving kids CBD for seizures or it helps with epilepsy or whatever, people have this idea that they're giving a kid a joint and the kid is there smoking a joint and getting high. That's that's not what's happening. It's the non-psychoactive part, the CBD. And so um, a lot of people have self-reported over the years that, oh, when I smoke weed, it's great because then I can just fall asleep and it's great for my sleep. But when you smoke weed with CBD and THC, it might help you fall asleep, but what it does is inhibits REM sleep. So it actually reduces REM uh, on that. I've actually done a, there was a great paper a few years ago looking at the impacts of um, cannabis on sleep, a review paper that reviewed all the literature. And I did an audio abstract on sleep for performance. Where if, you, if you want, you can link it. And it's like a 20 minute, half an hour me just breaking down the science on that. So basically, when you smoke weed, it does not help your sleep. So everybody will go, oh, no, no, I've heard it on the Joe Rogan, I've heard it on this podcast, blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't. It reduces the amount of time you have in REM sleep. The most common reaction then or the most common feedback people will give you is, oh, yeah, I quit weed and I was having crazy dreams and couldn't sleep for six months, so I went back on the weed. That's what's called REM rebound. Because your REM sleep was suppressed for so long, you have what's called REM rebound. So your body's trying to make up all that REM sleep because your body will always prioritize REM over non-REM every each and every time. Because if the software is not operating, there's no point in having the hardware, right? So uh, Jen and the team down at UWA in the Center for Sleep Science looked at, they did a double-blind, randomized, crossover-designed placebo trial, blah, 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 blah. Like the higher, the top of it was a sort of perfect um, um experiment looking at CBD. So to give people, um, you know, like a washout period with no caffeine and so on, they give them a placebo, which sees like drops. Um, so even the research didn't know if they're giving them the real ones or the, not the real ones. And then they came into the lab, they did stuff in the lab overnight, looking at PSG to make sure people didn't have sleep disorders. They went home, they had actigraphy on their wrist, so it was measuring their sleep and wake patterns. So this went on for like weeks and weeks. People were coming to the lab, either getting THC or not, sorry, getting CBD or not CBD, and then seeing what happened. And what they found in that study was, and this has been published, is that CBD in this drop form from this proprietary blend basically significantly reduced insomnia with no deleterious effects. So the REM sleep wasn't inhibited, but it seriously reduced insomnia because it was only CBD. It wasn't THC. So the CBD, CBD component will actually reduce insomnia. Now, it's really important. So if anybody's sitting there going, oh, I have insomnia, I need to take CBD. These were people that were clinically diagnosed with insomnia. To be clinically diagnosed with insomnia is very hard. You have to have issues for over three months. So it's not like, oh, I had a bad night's sleep on Friday, I have insomnia, <laughs> right? So these were people with clinical insomnia. And their clinical insomnia reduced looking at the insomnia severity index, which is a validated questionnaire. Their actigraphy, their sleep measures reduced. Um, so it was basically in terms of the sleep onset latency, for example, or the time spent awake. So with those measures, 
everything went in a positive direction for the people doing so the, ma- the major metrics and yeah. just to unpack some of those terms PSG is polysomnography is that PSG right? is polysomnography yeah so and it's in, are, the, in the laboratory and that's that's your sort of full wazoo of all the all things the you electrodes talked about electrodes. Electrodes. plus there's more stuff they're looking at respiratory drive we're looking at EM EM uh, EKG there's EMG on the legs they were looking at airflow from the nose we're looking at pulse oximetry there's a whole gamut of things that we look at. So that's at. your, your yeah. full physiological full, yeah, PS, snapshot yeah, of what's happening. It's the gold happening. standard overnight in a laboratory. We've got a camera. We've got audio in there to measure snoring. There's all sorts. So it's the top of the was a PSG level one in laboratory. And and our tigraphy, what's what's that? Actigraphy is the wrist-worn devices, so like the Fitbit type things, but they use validated actigraphy devices, and that's measuring sleep and movement patterns. And that's what we use in an applied chronobiology when we have to collect weeks and weeks of just data. Just for that longitudinal, longitudinal data in between data, the in between nights and the, PSG, and the yeah. lab. So because when you go into one of those laboratories and you got all those wires on you, it's not really conducive to good sleep. And so what that's really like doing, as I said to people, that's like taking a blood test. That's like a blood test. We're like, we're just doing a deep dive. We don't really care if you had a good night's sleep or not. We just need to get a few hours of sleep to see if you have any of these sleep disorders or sleep problems. That's all we're really worried about there. That's, it's good to know because I would imagine people are probably put off because they think, well, it's so artificial and, you know, they wouldn't get a good, they wouldn't get good measurements anyway. But when people are, you're looking at, at sort of the, the organism, not the, not the person. Exactly. Sleeping. And what you're trying to do there is you're not looking at sleep habits. You're looking for the prevalence of sleep disorders and sleep architecture. Sleep, yeah. Sleep architecture, sleep problems, all related to that. Um, so what, that's what we're looking for there is purely like doing a, like a sleep biopsy. So there's a, there's a very, that's great research. And I'll link to that if it's available. You know, you've got it's nicely blinded because there's no uh, it's, uh, it's there's no bias on it. Um, th- it's nicely blinded from there's no phenomenology of CBD if it's if it's isolated. I don't uh, there is there is it anxiolytic like does it if it's just CBD drops? Is there any perceptual change that somebody might be able to tell that they've been given CBD versus the placebo? No, because there's no psychoactive component to it. Um, so. There was minimal amounts of THC in it, very, very small, but it was not psychoactive. So they weren't like having some sort of like crazy experience on it. Plus, they didn't know what they were getting. The researchers didn't know what they were given. Completely blind to it. Everything looked the same. And what is, what's then, so let's flip to THC. So how does THC, so weed, people smoking weed and there's THC in it. What does that superimposition do to people's sleep, having the THC involved? So I'm not fully sure about the mechanism of this, but what THC does, basically, because it's psychoactive, inhibits REM. That's the main thing it does. It reduces the amount of REM sleep. In terms of the kind of the pathway of how that affects it and other things it may affect, I'm not too sure because it's not an area I research in. I just interviewed Jen for my own podcast, and I wasn't involved in that research. It's just purely out of interest. Um but yeah, it basically the main, the, the main negative af- impact of that is that it reduces REM sleep. And so there you go. There's another one. Like if people are like long-term pot smokers um, and then they want to go and do DMT, you've got all that REM sleep that you haven't had. So again, another at-risk factor going into this as well. I hadn't even thought of that. But if you have someone, at when these things start to leave the lab, you know, so say... Um, a lot of the research will require that people stop their uh, antidepressants to avoid uh, uh, um, being like overly, overly. What is it? 
serotonergic shock or uh, that syndrome. So they're going to have to wean people off their SSRIs, which is a concern because all there's going to be a fallow period when all of a sudden they don't have any pharmacological cover for something, uh, and they're concerned about suicide, things like that. But I hadn't even considered that if someone is in the process of coming off weed, which would be very common, I would imagine, because it's a way people self-medicate for anxiety a lot. So all of a sudden you have someone who's saying, I'm going to take this, you know, what they think is a more like major league psychedelic. And they're going through a preparatory strategy, but they haven't really considered and don't understand what will happen to their sleep when they stop smoking weed after a 20-year habit or whatever. Um, they're going to not necessarily if they haven't done their own research and don't have that support the scaffolding to transition so they might have a horrible time before they it's just interesting i hadn't even considered that there might need to be some intervent like management prevent management of people transitioning off these things from a sleep perspective and i I don't i don't know an eyeliner like what's the actual it's not like i'm sitting here having the answers these are just all the things i'm seeing and i just don't hear any of these conversations at the moment with sleep and maybe people are looking at these things, I don't know, but I'm just looking, it kind of looks like at the moment, I'm just getting wet tea bags and throwing them at the wall and seeing what sticks, and then kind of pointing out all the bad things, and I'm not doing that. In actual fact, I'm looking to actually do some research in this area to try and establish maybe some preliminary frameworks or try and guide the research. I, I only I only do this in a kind of, it may come across as being kind of a bit negative, but it's not, it's more like these are the things we need to do. And a man, if I had the money, like to be, because I'm not a full-time researcher and I don't get funded by anybody, any research I do is funded through my own business or my own pocket. So if someone out there wants to fund me to look at these things, I'll gra- gladly take it and set up a program. But, you know, if I had multi-million dollars, if I had Conor McGregor money, I'd be re- I'd be re- searching, uh, researching these problems myself and funding them myself. These are questions that I grapple with and and and, and problems that I, that I think about and try to develop. And it, the more of these things that I have, it's just the way I operate. I just like to have more and more problems than than answers. So, and again, it's it's not trying to again, you know, throw shit at people, but I just think all of these things need to be looked at. And if I can help in any way to make a positive, uh, I do want to do that. And I want to. What I want to do is try and create the safest, effective, effective, the, the safest, most effective path for people who want to go on these journeys. Because I don't want people to turn around and say in 20 years' time or 15 years' time, oh, look what happened here. All these people with certain sleep disorders, sleep problems, went and did psilocybin at some residential area. We never even considered sleep or we never considered this and blah, blah, blah. Why didn't someone say it? You know, and, and I think if we start having these conversations more like what you're talking about, this integrative, holistic approach at the start, it's going to be better because it's a, it's a better business case, for want of a better word, overall, as opposed to, oh, just take X amount of mushrooms and, you know, your your world's problems will be solved. Yeah, which is just totally not... It's very naive, like, and I think that's what a lot of people are, are thinking because they hear it on podcasts or they read some article or some, you know, pro-something, um, you know, pro-psychedelic specific yeah, article. And it's just, I don't know, it, it just worries it's me. Too that narrow. It's, yeah. So uh, the, the phone goes and you pick it up and it's Conor McGregor and he's like, oh, you, you don't move like they move, you don't think like they think, I'm going to give you as much money as you want. And you say, he says, what are you going to research? And he's got a blank check. What would you What would you say you want re- to research? Um, so in terms of sleep and psychedelics, the first thing I'd like to do is kick off with a systematic review of looking at all the research that's out there related to sleep and psychedelics. Psychedelics, the term pertaining to all of these drugs from DMT to MDMA to psilocybin to mushrooms to whatever it might be, look at currently what is out there in terms of sleep 
um, the impact on sleep 24, 72 and 7 days and what's the impact on daytime performance. And that performance might be broken down into the elements of like daytime sleepiness, uh, cognitive performance, physical performance, anything that's out there pertaining to these things. I think the systematic review will set the benchmark of what needs to happen from there. The next thing then I would like to see happening, and this is me just kind of hypothesizing about some of the things that would fall out of that, is I would like to see in some of the research that's happening uh, globally for people who are coming in to do any of the psilocybin uh, sort of experiences, for example, or MDMA. Um, instead of just asking people, has your sleep improved, has it not improved, I would like to look at potentially developing preliminary frameworks or on-ramps into this to look at sleep, whether that's starting off with, you know, hey, Niall, fill in all these questionnaires, you know, we get a shape of kind of an idea or a shape of what's going on in your life, then do an overnight polysomnography, look at truly what's happening, because if we see, if you're a chronic pot smoker, we will see, and you've come off, we will see a lot of REM rebound in the sleep architecture. And then from that, then we can say, right, you've got this problem, this problem, this problem, we need you to get these kind of sleep habits ready or we need you to focus on this sleep timing because, as you said, chronotype could be a part of it too before you do your big dose of DMT on Friday night. So we need you to do this kind of sleep pattern leading up to it and we need to allow you to have naps in the afternoon. So we're not stopping people from doing it. What we're doing is we're giving people the perfect on-ramp. So even though you mightn't be getting enough sleep overnight, maybe we schedule in naps, you know, maybe we, we provide those that framework in and we can test those frameworks then in those you know, scientific, clinically controlled experiments to look at the benefits and we can look at PSG uh, before, maybe PSG on the night afterwards and then PSG maybe the week after and use some of this longitudinal data as well to collect these sleep and wake behaviours. More importantly, then talk to the person and see how they feel. Get both sides of the coin as well and then be able from that, come up with a practical framework that we could roll out across to clinics, residential models and so on where people can work within that framework and then hopefully provide education to practitioners because I don't think it's feasible to have a bunch of sleep scientists run around and work with people continually um, and it's not feasible for me to run around and help everybody individually but maybe we educate the psychotherapists, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the medical doctors, the people working in those areas to, to put some of these elements in, you know, maybe it's developing a, you know, a sort of a tertiary course at a university where we look at this and we provide people with education, we provide people with the frameworks um, to, to go ahead and do it. And then maybe, you know, more of a kind of a strategic support about when you set up a model or reviewing that for you periodically. I'm all about empowering people to do it, not, not because they're going, well, I'm going to set up the, the best center in the world and everybody should come and see me. It's not about that. I want to, I want to empower people and have the, to let people have this knowledge to run it themselves, not yeah. for me to do it. You yeah, know? and the the thing about having, if it's if it's one very specific vision of this is the centre and this is how we do things, it becomes, uh, everyone gets sort of cookie cut into that same model, which is antithetical to the whole point, which is individualised medicine, or medicine for want of a better word. Um, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more about um, having a look and just tracking stuff pre-intra, or not intra, well, that would be interesting, you know, pre and post uh, these experiences, because I think say, there's really not any psychiatric condition which doesn't have as a symptomology some impact on sleep, and it might be bidirectional, who knows, you know, so... 
but it needs to be measured scientifically, not just kind of like, how did you sleep last night on a scale of one to five? Do you think your sleep is getting better? It's if if that was all that if that was all that we as a human species could muster then fine that's where you have to that's as good as it gets but, but we're going to do so much better and I just think those two sides need to need to talk to each other um, I want to leave people with you know we've talked about it, we've jumped around a lot but there's just so much to discuss so I'd love to have you back on in the future if that's alright and I'd love to just not out some actual take home tips that people can have I appreciate you're not a sleep physician but what is the low-hanging fruit that you just see out in the world where you're like, if people want better sleep, they should this they should just do these sorts of things gen- generically? So if anybody jumps onto Google right now and writes in like, you know, 10 sleep hygiene tips, generally there's like 10 of them. These This is where I would say to people to start with. The other thing I'd say to people is when you have a kid or even if you don't have a kid, think about what you do with a kid. And I often ask this when I do education sessions with people like in shift work or mining environments. I said, we got kids? And they go, yeah. I said, well, what sleep habits do you do with your kids? Well, what do you mean to say? I said, well, what do you do? The kid comes home in the evening. Oh, well, they might go outside and play for a while. Then they come in. They might have a bath or a shower. They have some dinner. Then it's a bit of quiet time. They read a book. You know, they put Fat Cat on the TV. Fat Cat's going to bed. The child goes to bed. There's a nightlight on. You read them a story. You rub their head. You put on a little bit of nice music, whatever it might be. And the kid drifts away. Okay, what do you do to go to sleep? Um, so when the kids go to sleep, what do you do? Well, I come downstairs and I put on Netflix and I try and catch up on a few emails. So if my wife then might heat up the dinner because we didn't get a chance when we're feeding the kid. We have a glass of wine. Um, and I go, yeah, what else are you doing? So when Netflix is on, what else are you doing? Well, I got the laptop on, but I might be messaging my sister-in-law or my brother. So you got a laptop going, you got a Netflix show in the background, a glass of wine and a phone. And then what happens? Oh, yeah, well, generally try and get that closed down by 10, half 10. So close those down, go upstairs, brush your teeth and get into bed. But I've got a lot of problems sleeping. Well, no fucking shit. Because you've just like absolutely driven your cortisol levels through the roof with all this stimulation before bed. So, you know, people kind of laugh and go, oh, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what I do, you know. Um, And so I think it's the same thing as well. Having a routine is key. Try to keep the same, you know, sleep and wake times as much as possible, which is difficult if you're a shift worker or you've got irregular hours to work. Um, but trying to have some routine is key. So the same time to bed, same time to get up every morning. And the other thing I'd say is if you're struggling with sleep overnight, don't nap during the day. Because what you're doing during the day, if you have a nap, is you're reducing that sleep pressure, that sleep drive, and then you can't sleep at night. So stay awake during the day. The second thing is to avoid caffeine after 12 o'clock in the day if you're having trouble sleeping at night time if you're going to have a drink at night have it you know sort of maybe around dinner time or just after dinner the more you have alcohol towards bed the more it's going to disrupt your sleep alcohol will help you get to sleep but it'll fragment your sleep overnight okay so that's the other thing also as well if you can uh, expose yourself to natural light as early in the morning as possible that is really key so we know that natural light exposure is really good for alleviating and even depression depression um, depressive symptoms um, it's really good for entraining what's called the SCN which we didn't talk about which is the body clock and basically in your brain the suprachiasmatic nucleus which takes in light through the eye so it's really important for synchronizing that so early light, early um, exposure to light during the day is really good natural light not artificial light try to get out during the day um, open up all your curtains during the day at home let as much natural light in as possible this all helps as well uh, get some exercise in each day if you can you know, it could be low, moderate, or high intensity exercise. Up to about an hour of exercise is also good as well. Uh, try not to exercise too early in the morning. Yeah. 
So getting up before 6 a.m. is not really recommended because you're inhibiting that REM period of sleep as well. The best time to exercise is probably going to be, um, you know, in the early afternoon. So sometime uh, in the afternoon, sometime between 4 and 7 p.m., which is not always practical, but then maybe mid-morning or lunchtime. But it's kind of getting up at half four and going to the gym because, you know, somebody does it on a on a YouTube clip. But that person on YouTube doesn't have to go and do a full, full-time full job and go back to bed and have a nap. So, you know, be careful about the shit you see on, on the internet because uh, it's not always true. And plan. Allow yourself at least eight to nine hours in bed if you want to get eight hours of sleep. You can't go to bed at midnight and get up at six after six hours and then wonder why you're not getting eight hours of sleep. It's a pure mathematical problem. So these kind of sleep hygiene tips or these sleep things, this is where I always get people to start with, is about having a routine. Before you start thinking about having got a sleep disorder or a sleep problem, get some stability and some routine into your into your nighttime activities and focus on what you're doing during the day in terms of light, reduce, reduction of caffeine, and so on. And then to go beyond those, the next thing I'd start looking at is body weight. Because we know that once body weight starts increasing and people's BMI goes up, especially over a, a BMI of 30, um, then we're going to start having more kind of sleep apnea issues. So if your BMI is over 30, you're a male and you're over 40, probably a 90% chance you've got obstructive sleep apnea. And it's, um, I would imagine it's bidirectional because people who put on more weight it disturbs their sleep, but also I would imagine people who are poorly slept, they're, the whole shunting yeah. of their... It's a non-virtuous cycle. It yeah, just the, gets worse and worse. That, that yeah. will actually, it's harder to lose weight if you're poorly slept. I would say there's a lot of solid that on that exactly so yeah and look for maintenance over time look to be achieving those goals every day not looking to be like you know i'm just gonna oh no i'll just catch up on the weekend because that's that's just as bad for your system as well and there's lots of research on that some people who basically try to do this like weekend catch-ups some of those people exhibit pre-diabetic sim- symptoms within 10 days it's crazy that quickly, how, it's yeah. crazy how quickly yeah. disturbing sleep can start to perturb yeah. the whole system they call, is that social jet lag they call it? Or it's well, we, you would call it social jet lag, um, but then the physiological impact is pre-diabetic symptoms coming up by insulin resistance and so on. So that was a study done out of, I think it was Ken Wright's group in Colorado. And is that before you even map on the behavioural components whereby people are getting up, feeling tired and eating shit, like reaching for the you know the sugars? Well, it's because of that. Yeah, it's because of that's happening as well. Yeah, and so even people are starting to gain weight over 10 days. You look at it in shift workers, so the average shift worker, if you and I were both working... Um, and I was doing shift work, let's say me and you were 70 kilos, right? And I was doing shift work over a course of a year and you were just working nine to five. I would probably gain five kilos because of that shift work disturbance. So it just leads to it. And we see this happening lots in mine and oil and gas. People working night shift, day shift, this disruption. People gaining weight, finding it really difficult. Well, maybe I'm even thinking in the future we could do a more deep dive into like really not out stuff that really impacts shift workers and because where we're working is you know uh clearly like that's a big component of our of our working section and i'm sure you've got your podcast on sleep so i'm sure there's topics where you've drilled down into this so i can link to all of that because the key the key take home from this is that there's going to be overlaps that have yet to be seen between psychedelics and sleep as non-ordinary non-ordinary states of consciousness and that's a discussion i want to keep having but i mean the compounding evidence is that if you sleep better, you will feel better. So just start doing, you don't need to wait for the science to come in before you just start saying, I want to improve my sleep because I'd say the juice is worth the squeeze in ways that people can't really comprehend. 100%. And if you look at it then from like, you know, a performance point of view is you look at like 
for any athlete, amateur or even elite, everything's about performance, strength and conditioning and performance base to get to a competition. And then the other side of that is the recovery side coming down the opposite. But if people will go out and they'll spend money on, you know, some sort of sock that helps with compression to go out and buy, you know, um, these kind of skin things that goes on to them. People and go and do hydrotherapy. People do cold water exposure. People go and get massage. The number one recovery modality, which is free, which is sleep. So you, that's what you need to be doing first before you go and spend heaps of money on, on stuff is, is get that sleep. But too often people don't get it, but they'll have all the gear and all the recovery and then they won't actually focus on what's the actual thing to do. So maybe if we start charging people to go out to bed, we might actually get people to do it because it's like people want to spend money to recover. But really you can do it for free by just allowing more time in bed. I, I just am thinking this now from a, all the people that are out there, which is fair enough, wanting to be very democratic about mental health and talk about psychedelics going on the PBS that's great but there's something which is even more democratic which is sleep and I would say that if people focused as much on sleep as they did on all the gear that they're going to buy or if they're very evangelical about certain medications or or psychedelics it's like there's a free thing that you can do uh, that you're probably not optimizing and if you do that then you might notice the biggest stepwise changes in your health compared to all those other things and I think the other thing as well, Niall, is I'm not telling people how to sleep. If you don't want to sleep seven, eight hours a night, I don't really mind. It's not it's it's you, not me. So I'm not kind of out here saying this is what must be done. But don't think that, you know, you're going to be able to get by on five or six hours sleep and optimize perfectly. Something we didn't speak about is that 95% of people has been shown time and time again, 95% of people need between seven to nine hours of sleep. That leaves 5%. Everybody's going to go, oh, I must be one of those, right? So 95% think that they are the 5%. I must be one of those people that needs less. Well, let's hold on. And that remaining 5%, let's split that in half again. 2.5% might need more than nine hours. You might need more than nine hours, right? Now let's look at the remainder. 2.5%, maybe 1% of those people need between six and seven, which leaves less than 1% that needs less than about six hours sleep per night who can function adequately. Now, people may only be achieving six hours. It doesn't mean that they're functioning properly the next day. They might be getting by on it, and they might be so used to feeling like shit that that's how they operate. So I'm not saying that you have to get this or not mandating it or I'm not calling for that. You know, I'm not pushing something here. All I'm saying is that this is what we know. It's up to you to choose your own adventure. And if you want to do it safely and you want to perform optimally and you want to feel good, you want to increase your longevity or you want to take these psychedelics, this is the best pathway that I know from looking at the research and working in this field, and I'm open to new ideas, but currently, this is the best pathway for people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think just having people, there's a line from a song I, I often think of by James, if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor. I think people feel very <laughs> impoverished yeah. from a sleep perspective and might never have known what it is to have a full bank account. Yeah. So, uh, that alone is worth the price of admission. And so I, I ask this of every guest. Um, not let's let's focus just a bit on psychedelics because we've we've outlined a bit of what you're concerned about. So I ask everyone what keeps them awake at night. Excuse the pun the pun on sleep, but what keeps them awake about about psychedelics? But also what gets them up in the morning? So it's like what are you most concerned about in the field of psychedelics as you sort of become more interested in it? Uh, what are you most concerned about? What are you most enthused about looking forward in the field of psychedelics? Uh, 
I'm most enthused at the fact that we could remove all this regulation and sort of limitations that we have. And it is going to be free and open. That, that actually enthuses. And I think that's a sign of maturity in our society that we are having these conversations. We are moving forward. We're not kind of going, you know, like in South Park, drugs are bad. You know, we are actually going, oh, okay, let's look at these things. I'm also, I'm also enthusiastic the fact that I think that is going nice and slow and we are looking at it more holistically and it is a bit more controlled, whereas in the 60s, it was all over the place. So I was just like, kind of go for it, you know? So I, I do like that and I am enthusiastic about that. And even though I've outlined some of my fears and worries about it, I am actually enthusiastic by that. If you look at all the data that comes out of like places like in the US or Denver, you know, Everything's gone the right direction. Taxes have gone up. Violent crime has gone down. You know, all of these things have happened. There's been, and then people, are, oh yeah, they're all stoned, just getting around. There's been no decline in productivity. It's re, it's. I've been in Denver before that sort of, you know, green revolution, if you want to call it that, or marijuana revolution. And it was loads of empty warehouses, which now are all full. It's great. Now, maybe it, it's obviously had a knock-on effect probably to other people in the community where they're being priced out of areas and you're always going to have that sort of, you know, impact to, to different aspects of the economy. But to me, there was nothing... I can't see anything really bad that's come over. No. I, I, I That general... Yeah, and, and we've, we've probably drilled down, which I think is the right thing to do, on, you know, what are the potential uh, downsides to this. But obviously we want to be conscious that it's all relative so yes i think there'll be some major issues when psychedelics hopefully become more legal but i'm a cognitive libertarian like you so from that first principle i just think the the first privacy is your in your own mind and the first thing you own is your own tongue and if you don't have privacy there and you don't own that then everything else is moot so just from that perspective i'm delighted about that but in, in on balance i think as long as we don't go down the you know timothy leary path then we do stand to benefit as a society, I feel. And the slowness is probably bringing people in who would otherwise impatiently just jump to psychedelics to have to consider other modalities, other ways of being. So in a way, uh, us as practitioners and people in the community are probably being forced, and researchers as well, are being forced to go slow, which is always the be- pretty much always the best way for anything, whether it's training body recomposition or <laughs> psych- psychological recomposition, just not to not getting ahead of yourself um so going forward you've mentioned you've outlined some things where you want to uh, research if people want to reach out to you uh because they're seeing this overlap and are interested in either sleep or any of the other things you've mentioned and it's interplay with psychedelics how would you like people to best con- contact you so it, it doesn't really matter how you get in contact with me but um probably go to my two main websites um which will be uh, Melius Consulting, M-E-L-I-U-S, Melius Consulting, which is a Latin word to make, to improve, to make better in good style. That's where it comes from. Or you can go to Sleep for Performance. So that's um, the number four. So sleepforperformance.com or meliusconsulting.com.au. You can send me an email. Um, you get links out from there. Um, I don't really do Facebook or Twitter uh, that much. So send me messages on social media. I don't, I'm not really great at responding on those. Um, so basically, just email is probably the best way. 
keep all my kind of contacts and business stuff there. I'm always happy to have a conversation with people. If you're setting up a research project or you want some ideas or you want some input, always happy to give some time in that respect. Um, and I'm always happy to have a discussion with people about different things. And I'm also very happy to be challenged on anything I said today. Like, I really am truly open to new ideas. I am not married to any of these things. So if anybody's got ideas or you think I'm full of shit, just let me know. I'm more than happy to to look at counter arguments. Uh, but I don't want to be attacked personally because he just don't like me. <laughs> I, but I want to. if you want to have a good conversation about something, I'm really happy to look at other other aspects. Have you seen research out there that I might have skimmed over? Um, yeah, please let me know. I'm completely open. Um, I just want to do good in this world. I don't want to, I'm not there to debilitate or take the rails off anybody um, or pull the rug out. I just want to do good. So if I can help in any way or my mind can be changed, please let me know. I would also uh, like to add uh, a link to the Learning Today podcast, which is your new podcast, which I'm very much enjoying. Um, and the episode with Stephen Bright, which is where I first came across you. And then also I really enjoyed, there was an episode, uh, Rushing Towards Nothingness, which I really liked. Oh, well, Colin, yeah, yeah. the guy who died three times. Yeah, yeah. which is sort of give you a bit more, it's like a nice slow burn into looking at, uh, I suppose, what is the sort of central thrust of the podcast is, you know, taxes are now debatable for certain people if they know how to shuffle money throughout the continental Europe or, or the Cayman Islands, but death is not avoidable. So that's the most material, that's the truest thing of all. So if you think we're being overly esoteric, have a listen to that podcast and you'll see where a lot of, I think, the wellsprings of both yours and Kieran's interests come from, the philosophical undergirdings to a lot of the stuff that you're doing, which is uh, really, really important. Um, listen, I'm really appreciative of your time. We could talk for hours and there's a 101 things I want to talk with you about, but I just really wanted to say thanks for your interest and thanks for being so responsive and open and going into different arenas that was really i really enjoyed it no problem all right <laughs> thanks man cheers so thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed that conversation so in terms of supporting the show it would mean a lot if you could subscribe uh, check out the website mindmanifestpodcast.com where you'll find really detailed show notes and as always, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps the channel. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, no late to marry.